This is Lawfare No Bull. Last week, Attorney General Merrick Garland testified before the House Judiciary Committee. Yesterday, he was on Capitol Hill again, this time before the Senate Judiciary Committee. We stripped out all of the speechifying, the opening statements, the endless pontification posing as questions from both hearings, and we bring you all the questions and the answers only once and nothing else. The Q&A from the Senate Judiciary Committee comes first. The House Judiciary questions from last week come after that. We now turn to the Attorney General for his testimony. First, welcome Honorable Merrick Garland to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Attorney General Garland, would you please stand to be sworn in? Good morning, Chairman Durbin, Ranking Member Grassley, and distinguished members of this committee. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. In my address to all Justice Department employees on my first day in office, I spoke about three co-equal priorities that should guide the Department's work, upholding the rule of law, keeping our country safe, and protecting civil rights. The first core priority, upholding the rule of law, is rooted in the recognition that to succeed and retain the trust of the American people, the Justice Department must adhere to the norms that have been part of its DNA since Edward Levy's tenure as the first post-Watergate Attorney General. Those norms of independence from improper influence, of the principled exercise of discretion, and of treating like cases alike are what define who we are as public servants. Over the last seven months that I have served as Attorney General, the Department has reaffirmed and, where appropriate, updated and strengthened its policies that are foundational for these norms. For example, we strengthened our policy governing communications between the Justice Department and the White House. That policy is designed to protect the Department's criminal and civil law enforcement decisions and its legal judgments from partisan or other inappropriate influences. We also issued a new policy to better protect the freedom and independence of the press by restricting the use of compulsory process to obtain information from or records of members of the news media. The second core priority is keeping our country safe from all threats, foreign and domestic, while also protecting our civil liberties. We are strengthening our 200 Joint Terrorism Task Forces, the essential hubs for international and domestic counterterrorism cooperation across all levels of government nationwide. For FY22, we are seeking more than $1.5 billion, a 12% increase for our counterterrorism work. We are also taking aggressive steps to counter cyber threats, whether from nation states, terrorists, or common criminals. In April, we launched both a comprehensive cyber review and a ransomware and digital extortion task force. In June, we seized a $2.3 million ransom payment made in Bitcoin to the group that targeted Colonial Pipeline. Keeping our country safe also requires reducing violent crime and gun violence. In May, we announced a comprehensive violent crime strategy which deploys all of our relevant departmental components to those ends. We also launched five cross-jurisdictional strike forces to disrupt illegal gun trafficking in key corridors across the country. 
and to support local police departments and help them build trust with the communities they serve, our FY22 budget requests over $1 billion for grants. We are likewise committed to keeping our country safe from violent drug trafficking networks that are, among other things, fueling the opioid overdose epidemic. Opioids, including illicit fentanyl, caused nearly 70,000 fatal overdoses in 2020. We will continue to use all of our resources to save lives. Finally, keeping our country safe requires protecting its democratic institutions, including the one we sit in today, from violent attack. As this committee is well aware, the Department is currently engaged in one of the most sweeping investigations in its history in connection with the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The Department's third priority is protecting civil rights. This was a founding purpose when the Department was established in 1870. Today, the Civil Rights Division's work remains vital to safeguarding voting rights, prosecuting hate crimes, ensuring constitutional policing, and stopping unlawful discrimination. This year, we doubled the size of the Civil Rights Division's voting section, and our FY22 budget seeks the largest ever increase for the division, totaling more than 15%. We have appointed department-wide coordinators for our hate crimes work, we have stepped up our support for the Community Relations Service. We are also revitalizing and expanding our work to ensure equal access to justice. In addition to these core priorities, another important area of department focus is ensuring economic opportunity and fairness by reinvigorating antitrust enforcement, combating fraud, and protecting consumers. We are aggressively enforcing the antitrust laws by challenging anti-competitive mergers and exclusionary practices. In FY22, we are seeking a substantial increase in funds for the division. We likewise stood up a COVID-19 fraud enforcement task force to bring to justice those who defraud the government of federal dollars meant for the most vulnerable among us. In sum, in seven months, the Justice Department has accomplished a lot of important work for the American people, and there is much more to be done. Thank you for the opportunity to testify this morning. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Attorney General. Uh, hardly a day goes by in the city of Chicago that someone isn't killed with a firearm. The cases are heartbreaking. Little boys and girls coming, standing on their porches and going to school. And on August 7th, the Chicago police officer, Ella French, and her partner, Officer Carlos Yanez, we're conducting a routine traffic stop in the city. The person in the car opened fire. Officer French, age 29, was murdered. And Officer Yanez was severely wounded. I never saw such an outpouring of emotions in the city. I went down to Rita High School on the south side near Beverly, where they had the memorial service. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of women and men in uniform and just ordinary citizens standing waiting for their turn to pay tribute to Ella French for what she had done for our city. Two days later, we found out from the U.S. Attorney's Office that the gun used to murder her was obtained from Indiana through a straw purchase. That's when a person who can, who can clear a background check buys a gun at a federally licensed gun dealer and gives it to someone who cannot clear it. What are we going to do about this? What is going to be done at the federal level to show that we're taking this seriously? Ours isn't the only city that is facing this challenge, and we've got to act and act soon. 
Mr. Chairman, I am as concerned as you are and as I'm sure all members of this committee are about the rise of violent crime all across the country. I was in Chicago, as you know, at almost the exact time that the officer that you speak of was killed. I have gone to meet with the families of an ATF agent who was killed on duty, and I have stood on the mall with a candlelight vigil for many other police officers who were killed in the line of duty. The Justice Department is doing everything possible with respect to violent crime. In May of this year, I launched a violent crime initiative, which brings together all of our law enforcement on the federal level to meet with, to coordinate with, cooperate with state, local, tribal, territorial law enforcement to, to fight this issue. Our federal agencies, DEA, ATF, Marshals, and the FBI are all deeply involved in this. Our programs, Project Safe Neighborhoods, continue in all these ways, and we're looking for large amounts of money to provide in grants to police departments, specifically with respect to the gun trafficking that you're speaking about. Uh, as you know, Chicago is one of the uh, task force cities that we've uh, announced for purposes of tracing this gun trafficking problem. Uh, and we are doing so and finding the straw purchasers and arresting them as well. I could not um, agree more that this is a serious, serious problem that needs the attention of the entire country's law enforcement and the Justice Department is very much involved in the fight. I'm going to be uh, meeting with those federal law enforcement agencies to talk about the strike force and what they're doing, how they're cooperating with state and local uh, law enforcement. Uh, I hope to do it maybe even this week on a private basis and then see what more I can do. I think we all have a responsibility when it comes to this issue. Let me ask you about the home uh, confinement issue. Uh, we all know under the CARES Act there was an allowance for that possibility. And we know that since March of last year, more than 33,000 inmates have been released to home con confinement, including those released under the CARES Act expanded authority. Less than 1% of those inmates have been returned to BOP facilities for any rules violation. Do you re agree that recalling the thousands of individuals who've successfully transitioned back into society would be contrary to the purpose of home confinement, which is to allow an individual, quote, a reasonable opportunity to adjust to and prepare for reentry of that prisoner in the community? Senator, I very much agree that the home confinement program has proven successful that it both relieved the pressure on the prisons with respect to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, but also gave people an opportunity to adjust themselves to their communities. And you are right that we have seen very few violations of the conditions. Uh, so I'm very strongly in favor of being able to continue this program. Well, I'm hoping that um, we can get a definitive reversal of the OLC opinion that was dropped on the desk as President Trump left office and make it very clear what will happen if and when, and I pray that soon, the COVID-19 emergency is lifted. I'd like to move to another topic which has already been addressed by myself and Senator Grassley. I really invite the members of this committee if you don't believe me, type school board violence into your computer and take a look at what's happening. It's happening all across the country. In my state, as I mentioned, a 30-year-old man arrested and charged with battery, disorderly conduct after striking a school board member at a meeting. 
California, father yelling profanities at an elementary school principal. His daughter calmed him down. He later returned to confront the principal and struck a teacher in the face who attempted to intervene. Ohio, a school board member sent a threatening letter saying, we're coming after you. And after the board member posted the letter on Facebook, the president of the Board of Education for a nearby district reported his board had received similar threats. Pennsylvania, person posted threats on social media which required the police to station outside each of that district's school. Local law enforcement is investigating the person who made the threats and will maintain a police presence at schools and school board meetings for the foreseeable future. In Texas, a parent physically assaulting a teacher, ripping off her mask, and it goes on and on and on. These are not routine people incensed or angry. These are people who are acting out their feelings in a violent manner over and over again. The same people we see on airplanes and other places, same people, some of whom we saw here on January 6th. So when you responded as quickly as you did to that school board request, did you have second thoughts after they sent a follow-up letter saying they didn't agree with their original premise in their first letter? Senator, I think all of us have seen these reports of violence and threats of violence. That is what the Justice Department is concerned about. It's not only in the context of violence and threats of violence against school board members, school personnel, teachers, staff. It's in a, in a rising tide of threats of violence against judges, against prosecutors, uh, against secretaries of state, against election administrators, against doctors, against protesters, against news reporters. That's the reason that we responded as quickly as we did when we got a, a, a letter indicating that there were uh, threats of violence and violence with respect to school officials and school staff. Um, that's the reason, that's what we are concerned about, that's part of our core responsibility. The letter that, we, um, that was subsequently sent does not change the um, association's concern about violence or threats of violence. Uh, it, it alters some of the language in the letter, language in, in the letter that we did not rely on and is not contained in my own memorandum. The only thing the Justice Department is concerned about is violence and threats of violence. General Garland, regarding your October 4th school board memo, last week you said the memo was for law enforcement audience despite it being on your public website as a press release. As a result of your memo, local school officials and parents may not speak up in these meetings out of fear that the federal government will do something to them. So that's a poisonous, chilling effect. Apparently that letter wasn't actually supported by organization, but was sent by two unauthorized staff so last week, the organization disavowed it since you and the White House based your memo on this delegitimized letter. I assume you're going to revoke your extremely divisive memo that you said was instigated because of that letter. That's a question. Senator, the memo, which referred to as one page, it responds to concerns about violence, threats of violence, other criminal conduct. That's all it's about. And all it asks is for federal law enforcement to consult with, meet with local law enforcement to assess the circumstances, to strategize about what may or may not be necessary, to provide federal assistance if it is necessary. Presumably, you wrote the memo because of the letter. 
the letter is disavowed now. So you're going to keep your memo going anyway, right? Is that what you're telling me? Senator, I have the letter from NSBA that you're referring to. It apologizes for language in the letter, but it continues its concern about the safety of school officials and school staff. The language in the letter that they disavow is language was never included in my memo and never would have been. I did not adopt every concern that they had in their letter. I adopted only the concern about violence and threats of violence, and that hasn't changed. Who in the Justice Department was responsible for drafting your polarizing October 4th memo? I signed the memo, and I worked on the memo. The, the memo press release accompanying your memo mentions that the National Security Division will get involved in school board investigations. Is the Justice Department National Security Division really necessary for keeping local school boards safe if parents aren't domestic terrorists and if the Patriot Act isn't being used? Why is the National Security uh, Division involved at all? This kind of looks like something that would come out of some communist country uh, expansive definition of national security. The memo is only about violence and threats of violence. It makes absolutely clear in the, in the first paragraph that spirited debate about policy matters is protected under our Constitution. That includes debate by parents criticizing school boards. That is welcome. The Justice Department protects that kind of debate. The only thing we're concerned about, Senator, is violence and threats of violence against school officials, school teachers, school staff. Just like we're concerned about those kind of threats against senators, members of Congress, uh, election officials. In all of those circumstances, we are trying to prevent the violence that sometimes occurs after threats. Your memo stated that the Justice Department is opening dedicated lines of communication for threat reporting, assessment, and response. Why is the department, what is the department doing with tips it receives on this dedicated line, and what are you doing with those parents who have been reported? The, the, the FBI gets complaints, concerns from people around the country for all different kinds of threats and violence. That's what this is about, a place where people who feel that they've been threatened with violence can report that. These are then assessed, and they are only pursued if consistent with the First Amendment, we have a true threat that violates federal statutes or that needs to be referred to a state or local government, uh, federal agency, uh, local uh, law enforcement agency for their assistance. On the other hand, are there criminal investigations being opened for instances where school officials are trying to assess private data of parents with opposing views on critical race theory? I don't know about that, but uh, uh, it, 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 the Justice Department certainly does not believe that anybody's uh, personal information should be accessed in that way. Um, if there's a federal offense involved or a state or local offense involved, then of course those should be reported. The nonpartisan Justice Department Inspector General established that Andrew McCabe lied under oath to FBI investigators. He lied under oath to the Justice Department Inspector General. It should also be noted that McCain leaked 
government information to the media and then called the New York and Washington FBI field offices and blamed them for the very leaks that he caused. Under your leadership, instead of punishing him, the department reinstated his retirement, expunged his records as part of the settlement. He will reportedly receive $200,000 in retirement back pay, and his attorney will reportedly receive $500,000 in legal fees. So it seems to me that that's beyond incredible. So General Garland, did you authorize the McCain settlement? And if, you, if not, who did? Senator, the McCabe uh, settlement uh, was the recommendation of the career lawyers litigating that case based on their prospects of success in the case. The case did not involve the, the issues about uh, lying. It involved a claim that he was not given amount of time necessary to respond uh, to, to um, uh, allegations. Um, and uh, the, the litigators concluded that they needed to settle the case because of the likelihood of loss on the merits of that claim. The Inspector General's report still stands. Uh, there is no, we have not questioned in any way the Inspector General's findings. Uh, the reference with respect to uh, false statements was made uh, to the Justice Department in the previous administration and declined in the previous administration. The only issue here was an assessment of litigation merits. Short follow-up. Do you agree with the taxpayer, since you didn't, somebody else authorized it, do you agree with the taxpayer picking up a multi-million dollar bill for someone that lied under oath to government officials? I think the assessment made by the litigators was that the bill to the taxpayers would be higher if we didn't resolve the matter as it was resolved. How does congressional inaction in response to these Supreme Court decisions limit the ability of the department to protect Americans' constitutional right to vote? Thank you for that question, Senator. The um, right to vote is central pillar of our democracy, and as I've said many times, it's the central pillar that allows all other rights uh, to proceed from it. The Justice Department was established in part to protect the rights of, uh, uh, guaranteed under the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment to vote. The Voting Rights Act gave us further authorities in that respect. We are doing, as you say, everything we can. We have doubled the size of the voting rights section. We brought a Section 2 case. But there are limitations on our authority that the Supreme Court has imposed, one of which is the elimination of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which provided an opportunity to do preclearance reviews so that we did not have to review each matter on a one-by-one -one basis. Um, and then the recent, and that was Shelby County, as you pointed out, and the recently in the Brnovich case, a narrowing of what we regarded as the meaning of Section 2 and our authorities under Section 2. Both of those could be fixed by this Congress, and if they were, it would give us considerably greater opportunity and ability to ensure the sacred right to vote. And didn't the Supreme Court make it very clear that we could fix that if the, if the Congress wanted to? That, that's correct. In the opinions, they indicated these were uh, matters that could be fixed by the Congress. And I hope we will, because I think it's very important that all Americans be protected in the right to vote. We. I know in my own state of Vermont, we take that very seriously. Uh, now we have the bipartisan uh, VOCA fix to sustain the Crime Victims Fund. 
Pact of 2021 has been signed into law. Uh, a major piece of this legislation requires funds collected under deferred and non-prosecution agreements be deposited into the Crime Victims Fund, which had been projected to reach a 10-year low. Since this bill has become law, have any funds from deferred or non-prosecution agreements been deposited into the Crime Victims Fund? And if not, why not? Senator, the VOCA fix was something we sought and we're grateful for your support for and for your introduction of. We acted immediately after um, it was passed and something like uh, uh, north of $200 million has already been deposited in the fund uh, thanks to that act. We now project uh, that the fund should be um, um, uh, liquid all the way through the end of uh, 2022. Mr. Attorney General, are you aware of the caravan of about 3,000 people approaching the state of Texas? I have read about it in the news media, yes. <clears throat> I didn't know. I think it's south of Mexico City uh, is what I read. Yeah, they're what you're talking apparently about. headed toward Texas. So what would you tell these people? Well, um, the, I would tell them not to come, but okay. the uh, job of the Justice Department um, uh, has to do uh, with um, uh, prosecution and with uh, um, 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 the, use, the way in which the uh, asylum and uh, uh, removal claims are adjudicated. All right. Principal so you would tell them not to come? That it depends on why they are coming. But well, if they're coming to make asylum claims, what would you tell them? Well, um, like the Department of Homeland Security is the agency yeah. that's responsible for border control. Right. right. I, I get that. But you're the Attorney General of the United States. So let's talk about Afghanistan. The Secretary, Undersecretary for Defense Policy, uh, Mr. Kale, said, while ISIS-K poses more of a short-term external threat, Al-Qaeda could regain the ability to launch attacks outside of Afghanistan within a year or two. Do you agree with that? I, I, I agree that Al-Qaeda has always presented and continues to present a persistent threat to the United States homeland. Well, no, we but the question is, what's changed? You say always. Has any recent event changed the likelihood of an attack? I don't know. Um, you don't know that we withdrew from Afghanistan? I know we withdrew. I don't know whether the withdrawal will increase the risk from al-Qaeda or not. So you're the I Attorney General of the United States. Secretary Ray testified openly twice that due to the lack of ability to have eyes and ears on the ground and the <clears throat> unreliability of the Taliban, that an attack on the United States within six months a year is far more likely after our withdrawal. You're not aware that he said that? The job of the Justice Department and the job of the FBI is to protect against those kind of attacks in the homeland. Does it make sense that that would be a dynamic of our withdrawal? Do you trust the Taliban to, to police al-Qaeda and ISIS on our behalf? I do not trust the Taliban. Matter of fact, they've openly told us they will not work with us regarding con containing the al-Qaeda uh, ISIS threat. Are you aware of that? I think there's been inconsistent statements, but no, no they just literally said that. 
I think there have been inconsistent statements, but their statements are not anything that we can rely on. Well, we when they tell you to your face, we're not going to help you, do you think they're kidding? Do you think they really will help us, but they're just telling us to our face? I think ISIS-K, Al-Qaeda, Associated Forces are and continue to be. We're talking about the Taliban. The Taliban has told the United States they will not work with our counterterrorism forces when it comes to Al-Qaeda or ISIS. What response should we have regarding the Taliban when they say that? Well, I think we have a number of different uh, tools available. Like uh, what? We have economic sanctions. We, they need uh, uh, money from the United States for humanitarian and other reasons. But this is a... So the leverage over the Taliban is whether or not we'll give them money. Senator, the job of the Justice Department is protecting, uh, using the FBI and, uh, and the National Security Agency. The National Security Division is part of our counterterrorism operation, right? It is one. Has anybody from the National Security Division briefed you about the increased likelihood of attack emanating from Afghanistan after our withdrawal? Every day I'm briefed by the FBI. Now, my question is specific. Has anybody briefed you about the increased likelihood of an attack emanating from Afghanistan by ISIS or al-Qaeda because of our complete withdrawal. We are worried about the risk of attack by ISIS-K. I, I, I know, it's one thing to be worried. Has anybody told you the likelihood of an attack is greater because of our withdrawal there or are not? different views about the degrees of likelihood. That doesn't change our posture, which D is to always well, it, be it, protective. It doesn't change your posture if you go from a possibility of being attacked to a six months to a year time window of being attacked. We have asked for substantial additional funds for our counterterrorism operations in light Is of that in light of the withdrawal from Afghanistan? In light of a lot of changing circumstances uh, in the world with respect to Well, let to me just put a fine point on this. Uh, Secretary Ray has told the world that ISIS and al-Qaeda in Afghanistan present a threat to our homeland. The Taliban has told us they're not going to help us when it comes to policing these groups. Uh, the Department of Defense has said we're a six months to a year away from a possible attack by ISIS and al-Qaeda. And it just seems to me there's not a sense of urgency about this. There is a sense of urgency. This what have you done specifically? Every, now, I'll every end with night. this. Specifically, what have you done since our withdrawal in Afghanistan to deal with this new, new threat? We have strengthened and increased the efforts of our joint terrorism task forces. I have met with them. Literally, what have you done? I'm telling Just put it in writing. Just write down well, what you've done. I'll, I'll be happy to, to okay. have our staff uh, assess what can Thank be you. told to you in, in return. I've been pursuing the question of the department's investigation into January 6th since pretty early days, starting with a letter in January 8th that asked about the resources that were being deployed into this investigation and whether a task force, uh, prosecution task force was being set up and so forth. And then uh, another letter, February 24th, with, regarding to, with regard to uh, domestic uh, extremist violence groups, potential role. We've learned a little bit more now, and we've learned that there was a lot of money sloshing around in the background behind the January 6th rally and behind the raid, the riot, 
in the capital. For instance, we know that the Bradley Foundation, which is a big funder, um, gave money to Turning Point USA and to Public Interest Legal Foundation. Um, and it gets even more interesting because Turning Point USA has a twin called Turning Point Action, 501c3, 501c4 combo, which also got money from the Judicial Crisis Network to support the so-called Italy Gate, the debunked Italy Gate theory. At the same time, the Public Interest Legal Foundation had as its director Mr. Eastman, who was cranking out his fanciful memo for President Trump how to overturn uh, the election. Um, the Judicial Crisis Network is the same thing from a corporate standpoint as something called the Honest Elections Project, which was bringing a, a fanciful case in Pennsylvania regarding election fraud. And the Judicial Crisis Network was also funding RAGA, the, Rhode Island, the Republican Attorney General's Association, which was making robocalls to get people to come to the riot. Now, I don't know what's going on behind all of that, but I am hoping that the due diligence of the FBI is being deployed not just to the characters who trespassed in the Capitol that day and who engaged in violent acts, but that you're taking the look you would properly take at any case involving players behind the scenes, funders of the enterprise, and so forth, in this matter as well. And there's been no decision to say, we're limiting this case just to the people in the building that day. We're not going to take a serious look at anybody behind it. Senator, I'm very limited as to what I can say. I understand we that. We have a criminal investigation going forward. Please tell me it has not been constrained only to people in the Capitol. Uh, the, the investigation is being conducted by the prosecutors in the U.S. Attorney's Office and by the FBI field office. We have not constrained them in any way. Great. And the old doctrine of follow the money, which is a well-established principle of prosecution is it's fair, uh, it's fair to alive say, and well. It's fair to say that all investigative techniques of which you're familiar, uh, and some maybe that you're not uh, familiar with because they post-date your time, are all being uh, pursued in this manner. Would you agree that parents have a fundamental right to be uh, involved in their, in their children's education? Absolutely. This is the job of parents to be involved, and this is the role of the First Amendment to protect their ability to be involved. And that's why my memo begins by saying that we respect the right to a spirited debate about curriculum, about school policies, about anything like that. So it's not just, it's not just a good idea. It's actually protected by the Constitution of the United States. Would you agree? Absolutely. On October the 4th, a few days uh, later, less than a week later, after the National School Board Association wrote this letter, uh, the Justice Department issued the memo that's already been discussed. Um, why did this uh, rise to the level of a federal concern as opposed to being addressed at the local and state level? So th this arises out of... Uh uh, repeated reports of violence and threats of violence, not only with respect to school boards and school officials and teachers, but as I, uh, I mentioned earlier, also with respect to secretaries of state and um, election administrators, judges, prosecutors, senators, members of Congress. The Justice Department has two roles here. We assist 
uh, state and local law enforcement uh, in all ways, uh, and we enforce federal laws uh, which prohibit threats uh, of violence um, um, uh, in, um, uh, by telephone, by email. Well, well you as a longtime federal judge um, with a distinguished legal career, you understand that not every crime, assuming it is a crime, is a federal crime, correct? Absolutely. And some of these things, um, uh, unless there's some nexus to interstate commerce or to the federal government, uh, it's, they're largely within the purview of the state and local law enforcement authorities, correct? I think you put that correctly. We have uh, authority with respect to the mail, with respect to the internet, with respect right. to the Right, well I'm phone. not, well for, let me give you an example. If somebody says to the school board member, if you do that, I'm gonna meet you outside and punch you in the nose. Is that a federal offense? No, or that's, that's not a federal offense. I'm, I agree. Uh, there's nothing I agree. in this memo and, suggesting that it is. And why in the world would you cite the National Security Division in this memo as being um, one of the appropriate uh, entities of the Department of Justice to investigate and perhaps prosecute uh, these offenses? So my memo itself doesn't mention the National Security Division. It is mentioned in another memo that was released by the department. The National Security Division, like all the other law enforcement components, cooperates with and is involved in discussions about how to go forward on different kinds of matters. They were involved, for example, in the election threats. Um, um, they were involved in the threats against uh, judges and prosecutors. They were involved in the hate crimes uh, threats cases. It's just well, a natural part of our internal um, uh, analysis. Let me ask you, or did you see the National School Board Association letter to President Biden before you issued your uh, memorandum on uh, October the 4th? Yeah, yes, I did, and that was part of the reason, um, their, their expression at the beginning of that memorandum of... Biden. And they raised, they raised some of the concerns that you've voiced here uh, today, correct? They raised some of them. They raised others that I don't agree with and were not included in my memo. Well, you're, you're aware that on October the 22nd, the uh, National School Board Association apologized uh, for its letter. You're aware of that, aren't you, sir? I am, but... And it said that, uh, went on to say, we regret and apologize for the letter. There was no justification for some of the language in the letter. They acknowledged that the voices of parents should be and must continue to be heard when it comes to decisions about their children's education, health, and safety. You did not apologize for your memorandum of October the 4th, even though the National School Board Association did, why didn't you rescind that memorandum and apologize for your um, for the memorandum? The core responsibility of the Justice Department, as I said in my opening, is protecting Americans from violence and threats of violence. But you it, just said not every act of violence is a federal crime, correct? Right, and not every bit of street crime and the kind of violence um, that we've been talking about earlier today is also a federal crime, but we assist state and locals to help them uh, in, in um, their investigations of these kind of matters. Every single day in non-federal matters, we are partners with our state and local um, um, partners. Mr. Attorney General, can you confirm to this committee, as you did earlier before the House Judiciary Committee, uh, that the purpose of the memo that you were just discussing with Senator Cornyn 
uh, is to have meetings to discuss whether there's a problem, to discuss strategies, to discuss whether law, local law enforcement needs assistance or doesn't need assistance. Was that the purpose of it? Yes, uh, I thank you for making that point, Senator. That's I say that in the memo that the, the, the purpose of the meeting of the memo is to convene meetings with federal, state, and local tribal leaders, and to facilitate discussions of strategies for addressing threats, to assess the question, and to open lines of communication about such threats. Can you provide an update on the election threats task force and? Um, um, see, talk about what the kind of threats we're seeing to election officials. Uh, yes, Senator. Um, very much like the circumstances with respect to the school boards, when the National uh, School Board Association wrote us a letter uh, advising of threats of violence and violence. Uh, earlier this year, we received uh, communications from the National Association of Secretaries of State and the National Association of um, Election Administrators um, uh, raising concerns about threats of violence and violence in, in that area. Um, in that, uh, there, soon thereafter, I met, uh, virtually, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, with a large number of uh, election administrators and secretary of states, uh, where they recounted these, uh, the kind of threats uh, that you're talking about. Um, and that led us to establish a task force, um, which again, uh, coordinated efforts between um, the federal law enforcement agencies, U.S. attorneys' offices, and state and local uh, law enforcement uh, across the country. Uh, it is the case that many of those kind of threats can be handled by state and local uh, law enforcement and should be where they're capable of doing that. But the federal government has an important role, as you say, in protecting our democracy and protecting its threats against public officials. So there, that is an ongoing um, um, task force um, evaluating uh, threats in that particular area. Thank you. Thank you. Um, to another area, uh, could you talk about the antitrust budget? Senator Grassley and I have passed a bill with the support of the members of this committee um, to add some additional resources to the antitrust division. Senator Lee and I have held numerous um, very informative hearings about various issues related to antitrust. Uh, could you talk about what's happening there? Yes. The uh, Justice Department is very much committed. As I said, it's a key focus of our attention. Um, antitrust enforcement, because it's essential uh, for consumer uh, well-being and for the well-being of our citizens. Um, we have aggressively moved in this area. We've already stopped um, a merger of two of the top three largest uh, international insurance brokers. Uh, we have, as you say, uh, continued. Uh, uh, we are in the middle of uh, trials, uh, criminal trials, with respect to uh, price fixing and market allocation. We have the ongoing uh, matter involving exclusionary conduct in the Google case. Uh, we are looking, uh, we have investigations and uh, attention in many areas from healthcare to, uh, to agriculture uh, to uh, allocations within labor markets. Uh, could, could I just ask you, we were talking about the criminal cases, could giving the antitrust agencies authority to seek substantial civil fines uh, for Sherman Act violations help enforcers deter anti-competitive conduct? I'm sorry. I, I A civil, would civil fines, would that be helpful? Uh, uh, yes, uh, having the ability to, to, to uh, seek civil fines as well uh, would be helpful. Of course, if we succeed in a criminal case, the follow-on civil cases become quite easy. 
mm-hmm. uh, as I know from my own uh, antitrust practice. But we are uh, down in the number of, um, uh, of uh, attorneys in the antitrust division uh, considerably, and we need an expansion. That's why we've asked for a 9% uh, increase, uh, total increase of $201 million, um, in our FY22 budget. Okay. The number of mergers has uh, skyrocketed, and the number of people we have in the division evaluating uh, that those mergers has uh, decreased. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we need help in that regard. Thank you, and I really appreciate the bipartisan work we've done in this committee on that front. Uh, Last question, in July, the department announced that it was adopting a new policy that restricts the use of compulsory process to obtain information from members of the news media acting within the scope of news gathering activities, an issue we discussed, you and I discussed, at your confirmation hearing. As a part of that announcement, you asked the Deputy Attorney General to undertake a review process to further explain, develop, and codify the policy. Can you provide an update on the steps the Deputy Attorney General has taken to ensure that the new policy is implemented? Yeah, so um, uh, issuing a memo is good, and it controls the Justice Department now. Uh, The next step, though, is to have a regulation, which will um, uh, give us some greater permanence, and the next step after that would be legislation which the Justice Department supports on uh, what the Deputy Attorney General is doing now is trying to formulate uh, the general outlines of my my memorandum into a regulation uh, which can uh, replace the current um, pretty detailed uh, regulations that we have. That's what she's involved in right now. Could you just speak briefly um, to how these different programs and initiatives are in fact um, designed to prevent violent crime, designed to support our state and local partners, Uh, and how these investments could work to assist, support, and protect law enforcement um, in conducting uh, their their obligations and duties in our communities in an appropriate way. Uh, Yes, Senator, I I would just add one more um, uh, pile of uh, requests there, which was uh, for over 500 million for the Burn JAG grants, which also go uh, directly to state and local uh, law enforcement. So yes, um, look, we are very concerned about violent crime um, this is an area um, which is primarily, the resp- again, primarily the responsibility of state and local law enforcement, but nonetheless has bipartisan support and has had this since the 1990s for federal government involvement uh, to help prevent. Uh, we are, as a consequence, uh, we have historically since then and uh, uh, accelerating uh, now Uh, lashed up with our state and local partners in uh, task forces uh, and and joint um, organizations in every city and every community uh, in the United States to help our local law enforcement uh, protect their communities against violence. We also have federal, um, uh, obviously, um, uh, laws which help us in this regard. Um, And... um, These include money that we've requested for DEA, for ATF, for the FBI, for the Marshal Service, all increases to allow us to support uh, these circumstances. Um, I'd love to understand how we in Congress uh, can help you through legislation, uh, as well as through funding to reduce immigration court backlogs, improve access to counsel, improve the uh, process, um, and also contribute to securing our southern border. Um, Do you have thoughts you care to share briefly, or would you be willing to Share those with us uh, in writing. Well, I'll be happy to um, uh, have the department get back to you in writing, but I I will say we have uh, requested additional funds so that we can put in additional 600 personnel, including 100 immigration judges, 
uh, into our Executive Office of Immigration Review so that we can do the kind of acceleration uh, that you're talking about. We've made a number of internal changes with respect to the way cases are handled in order to accelerate that. But we do need more money uh, in that respect, and, and I've made that plea uh, already to the Appropriations Committee. But be happy to get back to you in more detail. And, and, and just superficially, um, is it your understanding that when applicants for asylum have access to counsel or to legal counseling, the odds that they return for their final disposition and the odds that um, they will have a fair and appropriate process go up? Well, I certainly think the odds that they have a fair and appropriate um, uh, process uh, would go up. I, I, it seems quite logical that the odds of them returning for their proceedings would go up because they would know they would have that opportunity. I don't know any of the statistics about that. Though. Understood. Um, on intellectual property, as you know, long a concern of mine, I just briefly wanted to mention uh, back in December of 2019, DOJ Antitrust issued a statement jointly with NIST and the Department of Commerce and the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, um, recognizing that when a patent involved in voluntary standard-setting efforts, these are typically global efforts around uh, critical communications technologies and others, that all legal remedies should be available when a patent's infringed. Um, and that policy ensures competition, incentivizes participation in standard-setting activities, and plays a vital role in bringing uh, the benefits of innovation to Americans. Uh, it's also critical for our global competition with China and other countries. Um, I'm hearing DOJ has imminent plans to abandon that position or reverse it and replace it with one that um, does not embrace the availability of all remedies. Um, given that there are nominees uh, in process, uh, likely now for both AAG for um, antitrust and now for patent and trademark office, um, would you commit to waiting until there are Senate-confirmed leaders in these positions before a change in policy? I would love to have Senate-confirmed uh, leadership uh, in the antitrust division, and everything you can do to make that go swifter would be greatly appreciated. I, I don't I have to say this is a bit outside the area of my own expertise, but nothing. I assume any such thing would have to come through me before it would be announced. Nothing like that has come uh, to my office yet. Well, I'd, I'd welcome the opportunity to stay in communication with it. My, my last quick question um, relates to the Office for Access to Justice, which uh, has in the past, under a previous administration, been a leader in uh, debtors' prisons and the criminalization of poverty. Uh, tomorrow, this committee will hold uh, a vote on the Driving for Opportunity Act, a bipartisan bill I'm leading with Senator Wicker and a number of members of this committee, um, and it will make progress in terms of um, ways in which um, um, a, a decades-old practice of stripping people of their uh, driver's licenses for unpaid court-related fees or um, fines, um, which advances the criminalization of poverty, will be reversed. Um, could you say just a moment about the plans for the Office of Access to Justice and your view about the importance of uh, continued progress in criminal justice reform? Uh, yes, Senator. Uh, uh, equal justice under law is inscribed in the pediment above the Supreme Court and it's a core principle of, of American democracy, but you can't have equal justice under law if you don't have access to justice. And for much of my career as a judge, and even before that, uh, even before uh, being in the Justice Department, uh, and, and in addition, even as a lawyer in private practice, I've been concerned about getting access to attorneys uh, so that lawyers, uh, so that uh, People who uh, need help with their individual circumstances uh, can have assistance. Um, the president issued an executive order on this. Um, we have um, um, 
and there is a report, I'm not positive whether it's public, but I be uh, believe it is, with respect to reinvigorating the roundtable, uh, whose job it is to address this question, of which I believe I'm a co-chair. We are, uh, I asked for a review within the department, and we have determined that we should stand up once again uh, an independent, within the department, uh, Office of Access to Justice. We have enough money uh, to do that in the very short term, but our, um, not to talk too much about requests for money, but our FY22 uh, budget request uh, does ask uh, for a significant appropriation so that we can uh, stand up a staff uh, and get that office uh, going. On May 11th, Tony Fauci testified that his agency, quote, has not ever and does not now fund gain-of-function research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Last week, his agency admitted that they had, in fact, funded gain-of-research uh, in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Are you investigating Tony Fauci for lying to Congress? So the long-time rule in the Justice Department is not to discuss pending investigations, potential investigations. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Um, do you believe Tony Fauci was truthful when he said his agency had never funded gain-of-function research? This is outside of my scope of okay. knowledge. Let, let's turn to your outrageous directive sicking the feds on parents at school boards across America. When you crafted that October 4th memo, did you consult with senior leadership at the FBI? My understanding was that the memo um, or the idea of the memo had been discussed with the FBI before. It got did anyone at the FBI express any doubt or disagreement or hesitation with your decision to issue that memo? No one expressed that to me. No one? To me. No one expressed that to me, no. What on earth does the National Security Division have to do with parents who are expressing disagreements at school boards? Nothing in this memorandum or any memorandum is about parents expressing disagreements with their school boards. The memorandum makes clear that uh, parents are entitled and protected by the First Amendment to have vigorous debates. We don't, uh, uh, the Justice Department is not interested in that question at all. Let me be clear, the, the news reports I'm talking about were not the news reports in that letter. They were other news reports that everybody here has heard about, subsequent reports that everybody has heard about. We are, there is nothing in this memorandum, and I wish if senators were concerned about this, they would quote my words. This memorandum is not about parents being able to object in their school boards. They are protected by the First Amendment. As long as there are no threats of violence, they are completely protected. So parents can object to their school boards about curriculum, about the treatment of their children, um, about school policies. All of that is 100% protected by the First Amendment, and there is nothing in this memorandum contrary to that. We are only trying to prevent violence against school officials. Mr. Attorney General, would you briefly describe the actions that you and the department have taken thus far to implement the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act? Thank you, Senator. Um, even before the act, I had issued a memorandum within the department uh, to assess how we were dealing with uh, hate crimes and to better uh, organize the manner in which we were doing that. And then um, we're grateful um, that the Congress passed um, the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act. Uh, since then, I issued an, uh, a subsequent memorandum based on what the Associate Attorney General and the Deputy Attorney General had provided uh, in terms of the Department's progress under that act. And I believe we have now implemented everything uh, that was required of us in the act. But that, of course, 
doesn't mean we've solved hate in America, mm -hmm. but we have done the things that the statute has asked us to do. We have, I've appointed a coordinator for all hate crimes matters. I've, appoint, uh, uh, um, I've appointed a uh, expediter in the civil rights division's uh, criminal section to expedite our investigations. Uh, we've established a task force um, um, of federal law enforcement and um, U.S. attorney's offices meeting with state and local law enforcement uh, to coordinate, to explain, to develop strategies uh, with respect to hate crimes. We've had trainings for state and local, uh, territorial, um, and tribal law enforcement to help them recognize um, these circumstances. Um, we've asked, uh, uh, we've established a, a language coordinator, uh, a facilitator, um, so that um, our, our um, memorandum and press releases in these regards can be translated appropriately. And we've asked for a considerable additional funds in our appropriations uh, so that we may give more money to state and locals uh, tribal um, and territorial uh, law enforcement to assist in these matters. I appreciate the, the efforts you have, you have taken, and I, I, I think that this will result in, of course, some factual information about the, the, the extent of hate crimes and incidents in our country so that we can better prevent and uh, prosecute as uh, appropriate. You've been asked before, I think in, in the House hearing, about the China in initiative. If we end the China initiative, will we no longer go after economic espionage and uh, uh, IP threat by China? There, there are two issues here that we always have to keep um, um, uppermost in our mind. Uh, one is that the, uh, the People's Republic of China is a serious threat to our intellectual property. They represent a serious uh, threat with respect to uh, espionage. They represent a serious respect with respect to uh, cyber incursions and ransomware uh, in the United States. Um, um, and and um, we need to protect uh, the country against this. Um, 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 and, and we will, and we are, are bringing cases in that regard. Uh, the other thing that always has to be uh, uh, remembered um, is that uh, we never um, investigate or prosecute based on um, uh, ethnic identity, uh, on what country a person is from or came from or their family. Thank you. I'm sorry, were you, right. were you done? Yeah. Uh, the reason I ask about the China Initiative is that uh, under the previous administration which instituted this so-called initiative, that uh, there appears to have been um, racial profiling, which basically ruined the lives of a number of Chinese people. And I want to give an example. The Justice Department, previous administration, dragged Dr. An Ming Hu, a professor at the University of Tennessee, through a two-year espionage investigation, causing him to lose his job. At the end of the investigation, DOJ lacked any evidence of espionage and instead charged Dr. Hu with wire fraud and false statements for apparently failing to disclose his association with a Chinese university on a NASA grant application. His trial ended in a mistrial, after which a juror said she was, quote, pretty horrified by the lack of evidence, end quote. When DOJ sought a new trial, the district court granted Dr. Hu's motion for an acquittal, finding no harm to NASA and no evidence that Dr. Hu knew NASA's funding restriction applied to Chinese universities. 
So I would say from your answer that regardless of whether we have something called the Chinese Initiative, you have no intention of not paying attention to espionage and other bad acts by China. So I'd say we should get rid of this, this, what? This initiative that results in racial profiling. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kennedy. Good morning, General. Good morning, Senator. General, I'm, I'm looking at this letter from one of your U.S. attorneys from October this year, where he wrote to the uh, Montana Attorney General, all the county attorneys and all the sheriffs in his jurisdiction, suggesting ways that parents could be prosecuted. At school board mayor uh, for, for appearing at school board meetings in accordance with your directive. And one of the uh, suggestions made by your U.S. attorney is parents can be prosecuted for repeated telephone calls, not threatening okay. anyone, just on the theory that repeated telephone calls could be harassment. Really? Senator, I haven't seen that memorandum. I've, I've tried to express as clearly as I can here. I, I, I heard you, General, but this is one of your U.S. attorneys. Again, I haven't seen... Isn't that special? General, you're just a vessel. Right. Sure. Well, let, let, let me tell you what I'm talking about. With respect to the National School Boards Association letter, you're just a vessel, aren't you? I'm not sure what you mean by that, but I signed this memorandum. I worked on this memorandum, and this memorandum is my memorandum. Well, let me, let me tell you what I mean. We, we know that the National School Board Association was upset because parents were coming to school board meetings to object to the teaching of critical race theory. We know that uh, in drafting the letter, the National School Board Association collaborated with the White House for several weeks. They worked on it together. And we know that the National School Board Association, once the White House and the, the association were happy with the letter, the National School Board Association sent the letter to the White House, and the White House promptly called you and said, sick the FBI on parents at school board hearings. And that's what I mean. That, 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 that the White House is the prophet here. You're just the vessel. Isn't that correct? Senator, I did not speak with anyone from the White House as while well. I worked on this memorandum. This memorandum reflects my views that we need to protect public officials from violence and threats of violence, while at the same time protecting parents' ability to object to policies. Right. I, I get that. I, I've heard your testimony. Were you worried that you would be fired if you didn't issue the memorandum? <laughs> Senator, I'm not. <laughs> I, I, I decided on this memorandum on my own. I don't care 
Um, I, I said from the very beginning, I've taken this job uh, to uh, protect the Department of Justice, to make independent determinations with respect uh, to prosecutions and investigations, and I will do that. Okay, I'm I, I, sorry to interrupt, General, but I don't have much time. Um, now, when you when you got the letter that from the White House that that prompted your memorandum to give the FBI new duties and making sure our parents aren't dangerous domestic terrorists. You didn't investigate before you issued your, your memorandum the incidences cited in the letter, did you? Look, I took the, uh, a statement by the National Association, which represents thousands of school board members, um, when they said that they were facing violence and threats of violence, and when I saw in the news media reports yeah, but you didn't investigate the incidents in the letter, did you? No, there were, this is the first step. This is an assessment step. It comes before investigations. The, the purpose right. Before memo. you issued your memo, you didn't investigate the incidents. The memo, the memo is intended to begin assessments. It is intended to And, and in fact, m most of the incidents in the letter were, did not involve threats of violence, did they? I think that's correct. Most of them did not, yeah. and they would not be covered by either federal or state law. I agree with that, and they would be protected by the First Amendment. But threats of violence are not. Do you agree that it's time to end the sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine, uh, especially given the disparate impact it has on people of color? And if you believe that, why do you believe that? Yes, I, I do believe that. The Justice Department supports that bill, that supports uh, equal treatment of uh, crack and powder cocaine. The Sentencing Commission has, over the last decade, maybe more than that, produced a series of reports which undercut what was supposed to be the scientific basis for the distinction between the two, and it's made quite clear that there is no uh, warrant uh, basis uh, for uh, distinguishing between the two. So once that is undercut, there's going to be no grounds for that. On the other hand, on the other side, not only are there no grounds for it, it, it clearly does have a disparate impact on communities of color, also clearly um, recognized by the Sentencing Commission statistics. You have that kind of circumstances, there's no justification for this, and we should end this. I appreciate that. One last uh, just clarification. While there is a lot of unanimous support for this on both sides of the aisle, a lot of support for it on both sides of the aisle, um, there are some people that, that worry about it somehow affecting crime or crime rates. Could you uh, discuss your opinion of that perspective? Well, I, I think uh, powder uh, cocaine uh, is as dangerous with respect to crime rates as crack cocaine, uh, both of which have now been uh, unfortunately overtaken um, by fentanyl uh, and uh, and, and uh, the opioids, um, but um, both of those are uh, uh, bad problems from the spectrum of crime, but equalizing uh, penalties for crack and powder should have no uh, difference with respect to our ability to fight uh, violent crime. And so I, I just really uh, would love to know where you stand on this issue. Uh, to me, it's, it's an issue of justice. It's an issue of restorative justice. It's an issue of compassion. Uh, and understanding uh, the collateral consequences of ripping people back and putting them in prisons unnecessarily, uh, not to mention the, the cost to taxpayers. Uh, clearly, I have my opinion, but I'd like to hear yours. Look, I, I, I agree with you. It would be a terrible policy to return uh, these people to prison after they have shown 
uh, that they are able to live in uh, home confinement without uh, uh, violations. Um, and as a consequence, we are reviewing the OLC memorandum that you spoke about. We are also reviewing all of the other authorities that Congress may have given us uh, to permit us to keep people on home confinement. And uh, uh, as you know, we are also, uh, and the President is uh, reviewing the extent of his clemency authority in that respect. How, how long should we expect that review before you make a well, determination? I, 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 I can't say exactly. But we, uh, Am I, are we talking six months or, or less than six I, months? I, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure how long that will take. Uh, it may require rulemaking, uh, um, and, and so that may take more time. But uh, we can be sure that it will be accomplished before the end of the CARES Act provision, which extends till the end of the pandemic. And, and so we are not in a circumstance where anybody will be returned before we have completed that review and implemented any changes we need to make. Okay. And then in regards to just compassionate release in general, will the Department of Justice consider filing motions for individuals on home confinement who reside in judicial districts like the 11th Circuit? Uh, where courts have interpreted compassionate release statutes to cover only medical age and family circumstances grounds. Obviously, there's still a pandemic, and we know that putting people into environments uh, greatly increases their chances. I'm concerned uh, about um, uh, restrictions in, on compassionate release in places like the 11th Circuit. Well, this is something I haven't thought about, Senator. I, um, we, I guess the uh, Bureau of Prisons, which is uh, the agency that, uh, that, that decides those questions, um, has to have a uniform policy across the country. I hadn't thought of the possibility of making distinctions based on uh, which um, uh, a circuit, because you're quite correct, the different circuits have different views about the scope of compassionate release. I'll take that back for consideration if it's all right with you. We've got almost one and a half million asylum cases on the docket now, and it takes years to complete them. And about 80% of them are adjudicated as not having a valid, uh, a valid claim. So doesn't that data lead you to suggest that the asylum system is being abused? I mean, just that, that's, that's data from the DOJ. So, Senator, I don't know for sure about the data, but the, the purpose of the of, uh, of, of, of asylum adjudication is to adjudicate asylum. Um, people well, I understand that, but, but allows them to make these. Uh, this is a statutory question. I'm not an attorney. Not a Justice Department. I'm not an attorney. You're a, you're an accomplished judge. So I, I'm looking at this just from a practical standpoint. So Attorney General Garland, it's been over six months since our letter was sent to the Department of Justice, and we have yet to receive an official response. Can you explain? the delay and when we can expect a response. I, I can't explain the delay. I don't know what, what the reason is, but I will immediately take this back and be sure that the Office of Legislative Affairs responds to your letter. Attorney General Garland, what is the Department of Justice doing to ensure that there's competition in our labor markets? And is this yet another area where the department needs additional resources to fulfill the mission laid out by President Biden? Thank you for the question. The Justice Department's Antitrust Division agrees, I don't know if you can hear either, uh, uh, agrees that um, uh, competition in labor markets is as much a part of the uh, antitrust laws as competition in product markets or consumer markets. We have uh, a number of investigations involved in those areas that you're talking about. We have a criminal case, all, all public, uh, on the no poaching issue. Um, uh, we uh, uh, brought uh, cases and investigations uh, regarding allocations of uh, labor markets 
So I, th I think I can fairly say we agree with you. This is an area of concern, and it's an area of antitrust division focus. The antitrust division does need more money um, and more uh, uh, lawyers and uh, economists uh, and investigators. Um, it was down substantially uh, to one of the lowest um, headcounts uh, in, in, in quite a number of years. And we very much need to build that back. And that's why our um, uh, FY22 appropriations request asks for a substantial increase in money for the antitrust division. My question is this. Are you willing to recommit yourself to pursuing every possible avenue and every possible lead for holding those accountable who have used public office to undermine and demean our democracy? So um, as a general matter, the answer, of course, is yes. Uh, I don't want to talk about specific investigations except to uh, point out what's already been stated publicly on the record, which is a component of the Justice Department, although an independent one. The Inspector General is um, examining the matters that you're, that, about which you're speaking. Um, and I have full confidence that he will advise uh, me and the department uh, of what he finds, uh, and that we will then take appropriate action. Now, the Knoxville FBI has been very concerned about China. Uh, so why, give me a little update. What's the status of the China initiative at DOJ? So, uh, Senator, we are, we regard People's Republic of China as an extraordinarily serious and aggressive threat to our intellectual property, to our universities, uh, okay, that's, you're stonewalling me on that. We all know they're an aggressive threat. We continue to investigate okay. the uh, PRC efforts to... Um, Do you see them as an adversary? I see them as adversarial with respect to our um, uh, ransomware, with respect to hacking our... our okay. uh, with respect to counterintelligence, respect to counterespionage, well, we and all know those that ways. Over the last several months, the last nine months, several espionage prosecutions of researchers have been dropped. Our charges have been dismissed. So are there apparent failures of the initiative? Is it a lack of leadership? Or is it a compromise position with the administration? Is it incompetence? Uh, every case is evaluated on its own with respect to the law and the facts. Um, we continue to open cases uh, involving the People's Republic of China uh, daily, as the, as the director said. Uh, we will not in any way let up our concerns about okay. uh, uh, Chinese. All right, I want to move on. Let me ask you about the Durham investigation, because 44 senators joined me in a letter that we sent to you uh, in August, and we still have not received a written response from you on the status of the Durham investigation. So will you provide for me a written status report of the Durham investigation? So the, the particular aim, I think, of the letter asked about the budget. And as I said at the House Committee, Mr. Durham is continuing. And the only we way asked he for could, a status could, update. Well, and we also ask that the report be made public, available to the public on the completion of his yeah. work. Will that be made public? So on both of those questions, his budget has been approved, as okay. already announced. And with respect to the report, I would like as much as possible to be made public. I have to be concerned about 
Privacy Act concerns and classification, but other than that, the, the commitment is to provide a public report, yes. Can you guarantee this committee that uh, Special Counsel Durham has free reign to proceed wherever his investigation takes him without any political or otherwise undue influence or interference? Yeah, there'll be no political or otherwise undue interference. Okay, Susan Hennessy. She, Susan Hennessy was recently hired to work in your National Security Division. This is a troubling hire because of her political bias. She has made several comments that show she is incapable of working impartially on sensitive matters within the National Security Division, particularly on the Durham investigation. For example, December 1st, 2020, Ms. Hennessy stated, and I am quoting, Durham has made abundantly clear that in a year and a half, he hasn't come up with anything. I guess this kind of partisan silliness has become characteristic of Barr's legacy, but unclear to me why Durham would want to go along with it, end quote. So how can the American people be certain that she is going to be fair and impartial when she is on the record making those statements. So has she retracted that statement? Do you intend to ask her to retract that statement? I have to confess, I don't think I've even ever met Ms. Hennessy, and she has nothing whatsoever to do well, with Well, you may want to look at her. She is there in your National Security Division, and she is very much opposed to this. Last week, the Senate passed legislation that I introduced alongside Chair Durbin and Ranking Member Grassley, the Prison Camera Reform Act, to reduce violence and civil rights abuses in BOP facilities by overhauling a security camera system that IG Horowitz has found is outdated, unreliable, as well as the means of preserving and recording the footage from those systems. Do you agree that these reforms are necessary, and should this bill become law? Uh, will you commit to prioritizing the implementation of the requirements it imposes upon the BOP? Yes and yes. Thank you, Attorney General. I'd like to discuss with you uh, staffing issues at the Bureau of Prisons. Earlier this year, the GAO, which as you know is a nonpartisan independent watchdog, concluded that BOP lacks a reliable method for assessing the scope of staffing issues or the impact on incarcerated populations and staff of staffing issues at BOP facilities. Do you agree the inability to reliably measure this problem impedes BOP's <coughs> ability to address gaps, for example, shortages of medical staff, shortages of personnel who will help implement the First Step Act and anti-recidivism programs, as well as makes it more difficult for Congress to respond, and will you commit to working with my office to help identify where there's gaps in planning or budgeting or personnel management or the authorities that BOP has? Uh, yes, Senator. I, I met with the Comptroller General about this, uh, about uh, the various of his reports and this one in particular. Um, and I agree this is a serious problem at the Bureau of Prisons. The Deputy Attorney General has been working on this problem um, for quite some time now. As she, she has uh, uh, repeat meetings with the Bureau of Prisons to go over this uh, issue with respect to staffing and assessment. Um, and uh, um, I'd be happy to have somebody uh, on our staff meet with your staff. 
Thank you, Attorney General. The, in the Inspector General uh, has determined that BOP lacks a clear and consistent policy for the use of solitary confinement in BOP facilities. Has BOP, to your knowledge, issued such a policy? I don't know the answer to that. Okay. Will you work with my office to determine whether they have and what may need to be done to ensure that they do? Of course. Thank you, Attorney General. Question about commercial data and its use in DOJ investigations. In 2018, the Supreme Court issued its Carpenter versus United States decision that government agents must obtain a warrant before collecting cell phone data, but showed the location of a device over a seven-day period. Of course, this data is widely available for many U.S. persons on commercial markets through data brokers and uh, other technology companies. To your knowledge, do any federal agencies currently purchase data or any DOJ components currently purchase data or contract for services that provide device location data from commercial vendors? Is this data used in investigations or prosecutions? Well, I, d I don't believe that we purchase location data, um, but um, I'll be happy to look into that and, and get back to that, uh, back to you on that as well. I'd be grateful because I think there are serious Fourth Amendment concerns there. I uh, would like to discuss the FISA process with you. In its report last month, the Office of the Inspector General noted that DOJ and FBI still had work to do to implement the IG's recommendations to strengthen the review process for FISA applications to ensure they contain accurate information. And while this has unfortunately become a partisan issue over the last few years, it's fundamentally an issue of privacy, due process, um, and the integrity of um, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and the applications it receives. The IG's report notes that the FBI has not significantly changed the process by which a supervisor, such as the Assistant Attorney General for National Security Division, reviews and documents the factual assertions made in FISA applications. And I uh, discussed this issue with Matt Olson when he was before the committee for his confirmation. So what steps is the DOJ taking to make substantive changes to the FISA review process and comport with the IG's recommendations? So I completely agree um, that this should not be a partisan issue. FISA, on the one hand, is an extraordinarily important tool for our ability uh, to protect the country against uh, foreign enemies. Um, and on the other hand, it's a tool that has to be dealt with with the most uh, extreme care uh, because we have to protect uh, American uh, citizens uh, from uh, unwarranted surveillance, um, uh, non-judicial surveillance. Um, I take the um, Inspector General's uh, report extraordinarily seriously. I believe the one you're talking about, though, refers back to events uh, uh, from 2020 and 2019. But regardless, um, we take this very seriously, um, and the FBI director uh, does as well. Um, the National Security Division of the department uh, reviews what the um, FBI is doing uh, with respect to FISAs uh, routinely. Um, audits and analyzes them to be sure that they are uh, following uh, the, the correct rules. Um, and we intend uh, to continue that kind of intensive review to ensure um, that uh, uh, the internal regulations and the requirements of the FISC uh, are maintained. Thank you. Thank you, Attorney General. And I believe there is, within the last couple of months, some additional recommendations or concerns expressed by the IG about the implementation of changes pursuant to his prior conclusions. So, uh, so this must be the Woods. I think this is the Woods files that you're talking about. And, and again, I'm, I'm quite, uh, that's correct. I, I, I quite agree uh, that uh, this has to be done better, that, uh, as I think he said, it's a work in progress. Uh, and there is certainly uh, uh, considerably uh, more room for improvement, and we are uh, 
focused on making those improvements. Okay, well, please know that there's bipartisan concern about, about seeing those As improvements implemented. Thank you. Um, final question for you about press freedom. Mr. Attorney General, you issued a memo in July prohibiting the department from using subpoenas, court orders, or warrants to obtain information on the confidential sources of reporters. And this new policy, as you defined it, offers broad protections for members of the news media, but does not qualify uh, or define with specificity who qualifies as members of the news media. Um, is there a specific interpretation of that phrase that's been issued in internal department guidance? So the answer to that is no. Um, we have discussed this with representatives of the news media uh, continuously, and as part of our review for purposes of turning this memorandum into a regulation, we are continuing to discuss this. As you can imagine, it's very difficult to make that, uh, that kind of uh, definition. I'm looking here at this memo. It identifies no fewer than 13 possible federal crimes involving harassment and intimidation, including making annoying phone calls. Do you think a parent who makes a phone call to a school board member that she has elected, that that school board member deems annoying should be prosecuted? General Garland? No, I don't. And the Supreme Court has made quite clear that the word intimidation with respect to the constitutional protection is one that directs a threat to a person with the intent of placing the victim in fear of bodily harm or death. Prosecutors who investigate these cases know the Supreme Court. This is a, a, a very famous uh, leading case. Pro prosecutors do, but, but parents don't, General Garland. Do you, do you think that a parent who looks at the 13 different federal crimes that your Justice Department has identified they might be subject to and prosecuted for, like making annoying phone calls, do you think that they're going to feel that they're welcome to speak up at a school board meeting? How about this one? They could be prosecuted for using the internet, I guess that would be Facebook, in a way that might cause emotional distress to a victim. Is that a, is that a crime of violence? Senator, I haven't seen the memo that you're Why talking about. Why haven't you? And I don't, I, and I, I, even from the description, it doesn't sound like it was addressed to parents. But if you no, it wasn't addressed to parents. It was addressed to prosecutors. That's the problem. Why haven't you seen the memo? I, uh, I don't know why I haven't. I don't look at every. I have. I do not get every memo that every U.S. attorney uh, sends out. But I, if you're wait, wait, wait a minute. Don't, don't, I, I just want to be sure I understand this. This this is a memorandum that collects 13 different federal crimes parents could be charged with. It has United States Department of Justice on the top of it. And you're telling me you haven't seen it? Who's the memo from, Senator? The United States Department of Justice, United States Attorney for the District of Montana. I have not seen a memo from the District of Montana. I not high enough priority for you? It's not, that's not the question. I don't... It is I, the question. Answer my question. Is it not a high enough priority for you when you're threatening parents with 13 different federal crimes? I These aren't crimes of violence. You've testified today. You're focused on violence. That's not what your U.S. attorneys... They work for you. That's not what they're saying. You haven't seen it because it's not a high enough priority, or what? A question of priority. No one has sent me that memo, so I haven't seen it. What I do you mean no one has sent you the memo? You run the United States Department of Justice, do you not? There are 115,000 employees of the Department of Justice. Indeed, and you are in charge of every one of them. And, and this was a sufficiently important case that you issued a memo. You, over your signature, issued a memo involving the FBI and the Department of Justice in local school boards, local school districts. Your U.S. attorneys are now threatening prosecution with 13 different crimes, but it's not a high enough priority for you. It got lost in the mix. 
I'll send again. I've never seen that memo. It was That's what concerns me. me, General Garland. Well, it wasn't sent to me. I hope you will assure your constituents that what we are concerned about here is violence and threats of violence. That only leads That's me to conclude, way. General That's Garland, all I can conclude from this is either that you're not in control of your own department or that more likely what I think to be the case is that you knew full well that this is exactly the kind of thing that would happen. When you issued your memo, when you involved the Department of Justice and all of its resources, and the FBI and all of its resources, and local school boards and local school districts, you knew that federal prosecutors would start collecting crimes that they could use against parents. You knew they would advise state and local officials that these are all of the ways parents might be prosecuted. You knew that that was the likely outcome, and that's exactly what's happened. And we're talking about parents like Scott Smith, who's behind me over my shoulder. This is a father from Loudoun County, Virginia. Here he is at a school board meeting. He was forcibly restrained. He was assaulted. He was arrested. Why? Because he went to an elected school board meeting. He's a voter, by the way. He went to an elected school board meeting to raise the fact that his daughter was assaulted, sexually assaulted, in a girl's restroom by a boy. This is what happened to him. Now, you testified last week before the House that you didn't know anything about this case. I find that extraordinary because the letter that you put so much weight on, the letter that's now been retracted, it cites this case. It cites Mr. Scott's case directly. There's a news article cited in the letter. It's discussed in the letter, but you testified you just couldn't remember it. Maybe this will refresh your memory. Do you think people like Scott Smith, do you think parents who show up to complain about their children being assaulted ought to be treated like this man right here? Parents who show up to complain about school boards are protected by the First Amendment. Do you think that they ought to be prosecuted they in the different ways that your U.S. attorneys are identifying? If what they're doing is complaining about what the school board is doing, policies, curriculum, anything else that they want to, as long as they're not committing threats of violence, then they should not be prosecuted, and they can't be. Let me ask you about this. Several of my Democrat colleagues have today, just today in this hearing, multiple times have compared parents who show up at school board meetings, like Mr. Smith here, have compared them to criminal rioters. You think that's right? You think that a parent who shows up at a school board meeting who has a complaint, who wants to voice that complaint, and maybe she doesn't use exactly the right grammar, you think they're akin to criminal rioters? Do you agree with that? I do not, and I do not remember any senator here compare, making that comparison. Oh, really? These people are just like the folks who came here on January 6th and in, in, in the riot at the Capitol? I don't think it, they were referring to the picture that you're showing there. Well, I certainly would hope not, but they were referring to parents who go to school board meetings. Mr. Smith is a parent who went to a school board meeting. I'll leave it at this, General Garland. You have weaponized the FBI and the Department of Justice. Your U.S. attorneys are now collecting and cataloging all the ways that they might prosecute parents like Mr. Smith because they want to be involved in their children's education and they want to have a say in their elected officials. It's wrong. It is unprecedented to my knowledge in the history of this country, and I call on you to resign. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. For eight years under Barack Obama, the Department of Justice was politicized and weaponized. When you came before this committee in your confirmation hearing, you promised things would be different. I asked you specifically, quote, will you commit to this committee that under your leadership, the Department of Justice will not target the political opponents of this administration? Here was your answer, quote, absolutely. It's totally inappropriate 
for the department to target any individual because of their politics or their position in a campaign. That was your promise just a few months ago. I'm sorry to say you have broken that promise. There is a difference between law and politics. And General Garland, you know the difference between law and politics. Law is based on facts. It is impartial. It is not used as a tool of political retribution. This memo was not law. This memo was politics. On Wednesday, September 29th, the National School Board Association wrote a letter to the president asking the president to use the Department of Justice to target parents that were upset at critical race theory, that were upset at mass mandates in schools, to target them as domestic terrorists. On the face of the letter, the letter was in repeated consultation with the White House, in explicit political consultation with the White House. That was on Wednesday, September 29th, five days later. On Monday, so right after the weekend, boom, you pop out a memo, giving them exactly what they want. Now, by the way, I understand that. In politics, that happens all the time. An important special interest wants something. Sir, yes, sir, we're going to listen to them. Let me ask you something, General Garland. In the letter, which you told the House of Representatives was the basis for this abusive memo targeting parents, how many incidents are cited in that memo? I have to look back through the memo. I okay, can't you, count it. You, you don't know. How many of them were violent? Again, the, the, the general report... How many of them were violent? Do you know? I don't know. You don't know. And there's a reason you don't know. Because you didn't care, and nobody in your office cared to find out. I did a quick count just sitting here. During this hearing, I counted 20 incidents cited. Of the 20, 15 on their face are nonviolent. They involve things like insults. They involve a Nazi salute. That's one of the examples. My God, a parent did a Nazi salute at a school board because he thought the, the, the policies were oppressive. General Garland is doing a Nazi salute at an elected official. Is that protected by the First Amendment? Yes, it is. Okay. 15 of the 20, on the face of it, are not violent. They're not threats of violence. They're parents who are unhappy. Yet, miraculously, when you write a memo, the opening line of your memo in recent months, there has been a disturbing spike in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence. You know what? You didn't look, and nobody on your, on your staff looked. Did you even look up the 20 instances? As I testified, the decision to make uh, send the memo is for an assessment. Did you look up the 20 instances? I did not read. Did anyone on your staff look them up? I don't know the answer, but it's uh, not uh, But of the course memo. you don't. In general, there's a reason. Look, you started your career as a law clerk to Justice Brennan. You've had many law clerks during the year, during your time as a judge. I was a clerk to Chief Justice Rehnquist. I'll tell you what, if I drafted an opinion for the Chief Justice and walked in and it said, there's a disturbing pattern of violence, well, Ted, how do you know that? Well, I got an abacus brief here who claims it. You would fire a law clerk who did that. You're the Attorney General of the United States. This was not a tweet you sent. This is a memo to the Federal Bureau of Investigations saying, go investigate parents as domestic terrorists. That is not what the memo says at all. It does is not is it what the letter says? That is not what Is it what the letter says? 
I don't care what the letter says. You don't care. You said it was the basis of your memo. You testified under oath before the House of Representatives. The letter was the basis of your memo. Now you don't care about the letter? The letter and public reports of violence and threats of violence. My memo says nothing about domestic terrorism, says nothing about parents committing any such things. Your son-in-law makes a very substantial sum of money from a company involved in the teaching of critical race theory. Did you seek and receive a decision from an ethics advisor at the Department of Justice before you carried out an action that would have a predictable financial benefit to your son-in-law? This memorandum is aimed at violence and threats. I, I just violence. asked a question. Did you it seek an ethics? It has no opinion? predictable. Did you seek uh, an ethics opinion? It has no. Did you seek an ethics opinion, Judge? You know how to ask questions and answer them. Did you seek an ethics opinion? You asked me whether I sought an ethics opinion about something that would have a predictable effect on something. This has no predictable effect in the way that you're talking about. So, if critical race theory is taught in more schools, does your son-in-law make more money? Yes or no? This memorandum has nothing to do with critical race theory. Will you answer if you sought an ethics? Kind of curriculum Will you answer if you sought an ethics opinion? I am opinion? answering the best I can. Yes you. or no? Did you seek an ethics opinion? This memorandum has Did nothing... Did you seek an ethics opinion? This memorandum has nothing to do with... General, are you refusing theory. to answer if you sought an ethics opinion? I'm telling you that there's no possible... So you're saying no. Just answer it directly. You know how to answer a question directly. I'm Did you seek an ethics opinion? I'm telling you that if I thought there was any reason to believe there was a conflict of interest, I would do that, but I cannot Why do you refuse to answer the question? Why won't you just say no? I'm sorry. You're not going to answer the question? I'm sorry. Say, ask the question again. Did you seek an ethics opinion? I'm saying again, I would seek an ethics opinion in So no is the answer, correct? There was a Senator, your time is up. So a simple question. Does Operation Legend still exist? Uh, my understanding was Operation Legend was uh, directed at uh, violence over the summer of 2020. We have uh, addressed another surge of uh, federal uh, um, prosecutorial and law enforcement uh, efforts. Uh, this last summer, uh, we have um, uh, stepped up the amount of money we're giving to state and locals, and uh, we've increased our uh, joint task forces together. I've visited um, uh, federal and state law enforcement in New York and in Chicago and in Los Angeles and in San Francisco, all aimed at violent crime uh, in those areas. Um, and we've asked for considerable additional money, uh, uh, about $1 billion in grants, uh, to fund state and local police um, um, in FY22. So um, I think that's, I, I hope that answers your question. Okay. Only four packers, JBS, Tyson's, Cargill, and National Beef, control more than 80% of the cattle market. These companies hold a tremendous amount of market power. The Justice Department issued civil investigative demands in May 2020, but we've yet to learn anything from this investigation. Could you provide an update, and can you commit to expediting this investigation so that our cattle producers know whether there are any antitrust violations? So uh, I can't uh, uh, discuss the specific investigations. We have long-standing policies against that. But I can tell you that the Antitrust Division is aggressively concerned with competition in the market that you described. Um, we are also in cons uh, frequent consultation with the Agriculture Department with, the, with regard to the uh, Stockyards and, uh, and Pack Packers and Stockyards Act. We regard this as an area where we have to be ter uh, very much concerned about exclusionary behavior and anti-competitive behavior.
So I want to ask you, Mr. Attorney General, Shelby County pretty much got, got it, the Voting Rights Act, and then followed by um, Brunovich, Brunovich, uh, wherein the majority opinion suddenly comes up with all these guideposts that they now, that uh, the Justice Department now has to prove in order to protect our right to vote. So can you just tell us what the impact of the Supreme Court's Shelby County and Brnovich decisions have been on just the Justice Department's ability to protect our right to vote? And <laughs> is there something we can do? Are there tools that we can provide through congressional action that will enable you to protect our right to vote? Uh, yes, Senator. Um, the right to vote is a fundamental pillar of uh, American democracy. The Voting Rights Act is one of the greatest uh, uh, statutes that was ever passed. Uh, it enabled the Justice Department to protect people's uh, right to vote and uh, to prevent against discrimination based on race and uh, ethnicity uh, with respect to patterns or practices um, with respect to voting. Um, in Shelby County, the Supreme Court took out the most important tool we have, which was Section 5, which allowed pre-clearance um, by the Justice Department or alternatively allowed the state to go to federal court to get uh, clearance. Uh, and, and that left us with the circumstance of having to examine each case uh, one by one with the burden on the Justice Department. So one thing that the Congress could do is uh, put Section 5 uh, back in place, as the Supreme Court indicated could be done uh, with the appropriate um, legislative record. Second, uh, Brnovich uh, interpreted Section 2, yeah. um, a statutory section, in a way that the Justice Department disagrees with, as we made clear in our papers. I'm not saying anything we didn't say in our, in our Supreme Court argument. They narrowed it uh, in a way that we uh, think was not consistent with congressional intent and which makes our ability uh, to challenge discriminatory changes in voting much more difficult. Congress could again uh, fix that by um, bringing back uh, Section 2 to what Congress intent originally intended and making that clear in statutory language. Both of those changes would be enormously important from the point of the Justice Department's success in protecting the right to vote. Thank well, you, Senator. I'm sorry. Thank you, Senator. Mr. Chairman, it's clear that we will have to do those things that the Attorney General recommends to protect people's right to vote without a single Republican going in that direction. That's how pathetic it all is. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Senator Lee. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Attorney General Garland, I find it deeply concerning that you still haven't cited a single example of a true threat of violence. And if I'm understanding this correctly, and I've been here for most of this hearing, I've had to step out to vote a couple of times, but I think you seem to admit you didn't do any independent research outside of receiving the September 29th National School Board Association letter. Now, one of the things I find that perplexing and quite troubling, this came in uh, it, it, it was sent on September 29th. I believe that was a Wednesday. The following Monday, just days later, just barely over a weekend, you responded with your memo, relying on the NSBA memo. Now, I, I submit, as a member of the Judiciary Committee with oversight responsibility over your department, I submit requests for information all the time. Um, it takes time, I understand that. Sometimes it takes months 
to get a response back. I'm always grateful when I do get a response back, especially when it's a response that contains meaningful information. I understand people are busy and they've got a lot of stuff to comply with, but if, if one association can send one letter without any independent research on your part and within days, barely over a weekend, get not just a response, but an action memo signed by the Attorney General of the United States, I think that's weird. I think that makes me really uncomfortable, especially when the National School Board Association, as I understand it, or those associated with it, had publicly stated that they'd been coordinating with officials at the White House on this for weeks. It doesn't feel right, doesn't seem right to me. Now, last week, uh, two of our counterparts on our House Counterpart Judiciary Committee uh, asked you a little bit about uh, uh, the number of people entering the United States illegally. About 1.3 million uh, have entered the United States illegally this year. That's a lot. That's a lot of people. Of those 1.3 million, I'm quite confident, based on my own uh, past experience as a federal prosecutor, I'm quite confident that some non-insignificant portion of those will have previously been deported. And as you know, under 8 U.S.C. Section 1326, that is a felony federal offense, illegal reentry after previous deportation. Since they've asked you about that, have you had a chance to identify how many prosecutions have been brought for illegal reentry this year? And uh, I, I'd be curious about that. And I'd also be curious as to whether there's anything analogous to your October 4th memo. Is there anything? calling out concerns that you've got over illegal reentry. So on, 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 on that question, the, um, the 1.3 million are arrests, I think, made by CBP. Uh, they are uh, referred, they are, uh, uh, CBP, make, the, the Customs and Border Patrol, makes a decision about whether put those people into removal proceedings or to refer them uh, to the Justice Department for prosecution. We have uh, this year um, um, uh, charged thousands of cases, thousands of cases, criminal cases um, um, with respect to violations of the immigration laws with respect to uh, crossing of borders. I don't have the exact number. We can get you that exact number, but the number is in the thousands. The October 4th memo reads, in recent months, there's been a disturbing spike in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence against school administrators, board members, teachers, and staff who participate in the vital work of running our nation's public schools. Is that true? Yes, sir. Uh, I mean, it is true. It is true. I'm I, I have a list of, of very disturbing incidents. In Texas, a parent physically assaulted a teacher August 18th, 2021. In Pennsylvania, a person posted threats in social media which required pol uh, police to station outside of a school district. Law enforcement investigating the person. I could keep going. Ohio, a school board member was threatening letter that began with, we are coming from you. Domestic terrorism in the United States, sir, has it been more from overseas radical terrorists since 9-11 or more from homegrown terrorists, most of them being right-wing extremists? Which has been greater since 9-11? I, I want to be careful about that. The, the, the threats uh, that we face uh, with respect to terrorism, and, and none of those descriptions have to do with terrorism, but the, the threats that we face in the United States come both from foreign terrorists. A church and in South Carolina, a synagogue in, Pencil in Pennsylvania, a school, Parkland, a school, Newtown, 
Has there been threats and violence against schools in the United States of America? There have been, yes. Coming from what types of groups? Well, they come from domestic groups. From domestic groups. Yes. Has there been a long, pages-long list of what my staff could grab, been threats and violence against school officials in the United States of America in the last year? I haven't, obviously haven't seen the list, but it accords with my recollections. Well, let me accord your recollection with the letter that I, I've heard so much about that I pulled it to read it. You say literally, threats, excuse me, spirited debate about policy matters is protected under the Constitution. I'm quoting one of my colleagues today. Does that, does that sound like harassing and intimidating moms and dads? You affirm at the top of your letter that spirited debate is allowed. While spirited debate about policy matters is protected under the Constitution, that that protection does not extend to threats and to violence that we have been watching on our TV screens, intimidating people, threatening to hurt them, taking physical action. But you know what? You did not call for the DOJ and the FBI to monitor school board meetings, did you? No, I did not. You did not call for anyone to evoke the Patriot Act, did you? No, I did not. Sir, what you called is for the DOJ to convene meetings to discuss strategies for addressing those threats. That's correct. Is that intimidating moms and dads going to school board meetings? I can't see how that could be interpreted as... Sir, I know something about law enforcement intimidation. It stems from going up as a black man in America. I know what it feels like to be pulled over, to be accused of stealing things, to every time I drive over the George Washington Bridge as a, as a teenager, to know I had to put extra time because I was being pulled over by law enforcement. If someone's to read the actual letter, you are literally saying, as the leader of the highest law enforcement office in the land, that you protect spirited debate. That you think, though, given the climate of school violence in America, I've met with victims from Parkland. Mr. President, Mr. President I'm sorry. I, I have watched Republican after Republican go over time. And you're, I know you're gently banging that gavel, but I've watched all today. My colleagues violate what you said at the beginning was a strict time limit. And I would ask you to afford me two more minutes. Is there objection? No objection. Have you met with Parkland survivors? I met with survivors at the White House. Uh, and, um, uh, yes or I no? They, I think You've met with survivors of school violence. I have I, you? Have I think you? I met with the Parkland uh, families. Yes. Do you have a responsibility in a climate of threats and violence taking place at schools? Do you have a responsibility to convene strategy meetings to try to make sure we do not have eruptions? of violence in the country. Is that a responsibility of the federal government? Yes, our job is to protect Americans. Did you specifically say anything in this election, in this letter, that can be seen as harassing moms and dads and parents, or did you explicitly say, 
that the Constitution protects spirited debate. I, sp I specifically said the Constitution protects specific uh, spirited debate, and I don't believe there's anything this, in this letter that could be read to intimidate mothers and fathers. And I'm not talking about the outrage machines that seem to fuel our politics on both sides. I'm talking about the, the actual letter here, sir, that you wrote. You're, you're a good-hearted person. Is there anything in this letter that could specifically lead a good-hearted parent who is against mask mandates, who somehow believes that the teaching of racial discrimination is repugnant to them. Is there anything in this letter that would prevent them from going and speaking to it and yelling and being upset and letting their elected officials know what they really believe? Is there anything in the actual print of this letter that could be seen to that lead to that type of intimidation? No, Senator, all of those things are protected by the Constitution. Will you say that one more time? All of those things are protected by the Constitution. I, I hope that you will do your law enforcement work. There's too much violence in this country. There's been too many domestic terrorist attacks. I don't want to have the next hearing here be about some incident. I hope that you continue to convene your strategy sessions to protect parents and children and school officials from any kind of the heinous violence that we have seen way too much of in this country and that we all bear a responsibility for stopping. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the allowance of the extra time. Thank you, Senator. Senator Cruz. We talked just a minute ago about the difference between law and politics. We heard some impassioned political speeches, but also a question that just was asked by my friend from New Jersey. Is there anything in this memo to tell a parent that they're being targeted for harassment and intimidation? I would note that the letter from the school boards cited 20 instances, 15 of which were nonviolent. The letter from the school board described them as domestic terrorism. Within days, the Department of Justice snapped to the commands of the special interest and issued a memo, a directive to the Department of Justice and a directive to the FBI. This is again where law matters. The opening sentence describes a disturbing spike in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence. Now, you spent a long time as a judge when you have three things listed. Am I correct that anyone interpreting that, reading it, would conclude that harassment and intimidation are something different than threats of violence, given that you listed each of the three out separately? Is that consistent with the canons of construction? The memorandum is addressed to professional prosecutors. I asked you a question, not who it was addressed to. Senator, at least let him respond. No, not when he answers a non sequitur. If he, he wants may to respond, answer the, okay, you're taking my time now. This is not coming out of my time. Listen, when I ask a question, you've given he you can more time than any other senator, Mr. Chairman. Now listen, when I ask all I'm a asking question, is allow him to respond, Mr. Chairman. When I ask a question, he can answer the question, but he's proceeding to ask a total non sequitur. I asked about the canons of construction on the board. Uh, Please uh, let him respond. I'll ask the question again. Uh, the opening line of the memo specifies harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence. Is it correct under the ordinary canons of construction that a legal reader would understand that harassment and intimidation mean something different from threats of violence? Is that correct? A legal reader would know Virginia versus Black, the Supreme Court definition of intimidation, and a legal reader would know 18 U.S.C. 2261A, the definition of harassment. And, and would a parent? This was not addressed to parents. But you know parents read it. 
You're the Attorney General of the United States. You said you can't think of anything harassing. You directed the G-Man, the FBI, to go after parents. All right, let's move on to a different topic. Is the Department of Justice investigating Dr. Fauci for lying to Congress, and will you appoint a special prosecutor to do so? I'm going to say again, the memorandum that I issued is not partisan in any way. It has nothing to do with what I agree with or I don't agree with. I don't care whether the threats of violence come from the left or the right. Could you answer the question I asked? The second question, we don't comment on criminal investigations or other investigations. I'm respectfully asking for a commitment that you will provide these periodic reports to Congress and review the department's policies with respect to it's invoking the state secrets privilege so as to comply with the 2009 memo. I may have gone too quickly over the various actions of the department, but I'm referring to the 2009 memo, which requires those periodic reports. So in the eight seconds that I have left and- Yes, the answer to both questions is yes. We are currently reviewing that memo, and if anything, we will strengthen it. And we do intend uh, to make um, periodic reports. Uh, and it is not a periodic report to have not made a response since 2015, I assure you. So we, in, we intend to do that, yes. Judge, I want to return to our exchange this morning. As I've reflected on it, you made a shocking admission. You issued this memo direct or sicking the feds on parents at school boards on Monday, October 4th. You acknowledged that there was no effort in the Department of Justice, no initiative to draft this memo or create these task forces before Wednesday, September 29th, when the National School Board Association issued that letter. Is that correct? I don't know. All I know is that the first time I started working on this was after receiving the letter. That's all I- that's so, all. so from your standpoint, there was, you were not aware of any effort in the Department of Justice before that letter was sent on September 29th. I think it's fair to say, as you're suggesting, that this letter and what uh, the other public notices of um, violence uh, against school board members and teachers are what form the you, basis for this uh, this memo. Yes. This memo is dated October 4th with your yes. signature on it. Did you sign it on October 4th? I did. So four intervening days, two of which were weekend days. Yes. I'd say that sets a land speed record for the federal government. May I answer the question? I'm asking you a question now. Who brought you, this to you your attention? You asked me a question. May I answer the question? The question is why speed? The answer is when we get reports of violence and threats of violence, we need to act very swiftly. I would have hated it to have gotten this letter and then acts of violence occurred in the interim before we were able to okay. act. Okay, the Judge. The only act here is assessing the circumstances. That's all there is here. And we can't wait until somebody dies. That's Judge, why we did this. Okay, well, you keep citing media reports. There were 24 incidents in that letter. As you've heard today, almost all of them were nonviolent. Those they are not the media reports I was referring to. Uh, you said earlier it was news reports. Okay, what other reports that you saw about potential violence at school boards were you basing this memo on? I don't on? recall them specifically, but I have now again seen since that time people saying Who? that they're repeating what they have said before. That's a, but that's but all post-talk. It's all after the fact. It doesn't, matter, doesn't go into your mindset, your frame they, of mind on October 4th. Who brought this to you? Who brought this memo to you and asked you to sign it? I got, nobody it, brought the memo to me and asked well, me to Someone had to bring it to your attention. Hey, Judge, we're about to sick the feds on parents. I'm sorry, no one said we're about to sick the feds someone on parents. Someone brought this That's not an was accurate this, description. Was this an initiative of Lisa Monaco? 
This memorandum was, uh, went through the normal processes within the department, and I worked on it myself. And Someone is a proponent. It. Someone was a proponent. You, I bet you didn't write the first draft of this. Where did it come from? I didn't did it come write from the Lisa first Monica draft, Trump? but I did work on this memorandum, and it represents my views, and it represents it, my reading of the materials. Did it come from Benita Gupta's office? I'm not going to discuss. Was this Matt Clapper's initiative? I'm not going to discuss the internal workings of the Justice Department here. This memorandum respects my reflects my view, and I stand behind it. Are, and I continue to stand. Are you are you aware of the Are you aware of conversations between members of your Department of Justice and the White House leading up to that letter? I am the sure Board there were there were no conversations with me. I'm sure there were conversations. It's perfectly appropriate when the White House receives a letter calling for law enforcement response across the board, not with respect to a specific case for the, for the White House to have conversations with the Justice are you, Department. Are you aware of conversations between your Department of Justice officials and White House officials and the members of the School Board Association all cooperating together, which is why you were able to move in four days, Judge? Four days, two of which were weekends. As I said, I am sure there were conversations with the White House. I have no idea whether there were conversations with the School Board Association. Well, I, I bet we're going to find out if there were, and if it doesn't happen now, it'll happen in 15 months when Republicans are in charge. Well, of there's nothing wrong with there being such conversations. Let me be clear again. This is not a request to investigate any particular person or prosecute any particular pro person. In the same way you ask me to worry about violence in the streets, it's perfectly appropriate for the White House to urge me to worry about violence in the streets. Same way they're perfectly appropriate for the White House or any other organization to urge me to worry about election threats. There's nothing that I know, knew about this organization to suggest that it is in any way partisan. It's a National School Board Association. I certainly never, in my mind, viewed that as a partisan organization. And but now that they've repudiated their letter, why won't you just say you made a mistake? Because they did Why would you say you made a mistake and you relied on bad information? Be because they didn't repudiate their letter. They repudiated language in the letter which I did not adopt and don't agree with. But their concerns are about safety in the schools and, and about violence. And this is a core concern of the Justice Department. That's why. Thank you. Uh, Senator Blackburn has asked for three minutes, and I will conclude with my own three minutes after that. Senator Blackburn. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Attorney General Garland, you just told me that you don't think you ever met Susan Hennessy. Did you hire Susan Hennessy? Uh, you know, I, I, I have sign-off authority for everybody, I, I suppose, in the Justice I, Department. Okay. That's the best I can answer with respect to that. But oh, the question okay. you were worried about, Senator, and I understand had to do with Durham. And as I explained, she has nothing to do with the Durham investigation. I would like to know who came up with that language. Was that yours or was that submitted language? So uh, I, I, I don't know whether, um, uh, let me put it this way. This is language that um, law enforcement officers are very well understand. It is contained in the federal okay. statute. Well, in the House in the Judiciary Committee last week, okay, so we can depend on you and your Department of Justice to stand in support of the Second Amendment. Is that what you're saying, to defend it? Yes, of course. Okay. The Second Amendment Thank is you. part of the Bill of Rights. It's what we would like to know, and I'll look forward to the other submissions in writing. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I will now introduce today's witness. Merrick Garland was sworn in as the 86th Attorney General of the United States on March 11, 2021. 
Immediately preceding his confirmation as Attorney General, Mr. Garland was a judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. He was appointed to that position in 1997, served as Chief Judge of the Circuit from 2013 to 2020, and served as Chair of the Executive Committee of the Judicial Conference of the United States from 2017 until 2020. In 2016, President Obama nominated him for the position of Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Before becoming a federal judge, Attorney General Garland spent a substantial part of his professional life at the Department of Justice, including a special assistant to the Attorney General, Assistant United States Attorney, Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Criminal Division, and Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General. Earlier in his career, Attorney General Garland was in private practice and he also taught at Harvard Law School. He earned both his undergraduate and law degrees from Harvard University. Following law school, he clerked for Judge Henry Friendly of the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit and for Supreme Court Justice William Brennan. We welcome the Attorney General and we thank him for participating today. Now, if you'd please rise, I'll begin by swearing you in. Good morning, Chairman Nadler, Ranking Member Jordan, <coughs> distinguished members of this committee. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. In my address to all Justice Department employees on my first day in office, I spoke about three co-equal priorities that should guide the Department's work. Upholding the rule of law, keeping our country safe, and protecting civil rights. The first core priority, upholding the rule of law, is rooted in the recognition that to succeed and retain the trust of the American people, the Justice Department must adhere to the norms that have been part of its DNA since Edward Levy's tenure as the first post-Watergate Attorney General. Those norms of independence from improper influence, of the principled exercise of discretion, and of treating like cases alike define who we are as public servants. Over the past seven months that I have served as Attorney General, the Department has reaffirmed and, where appropriate, updated and strengthened policies that are foundational for these norms. For example, we strengthened our policy governing communications between the Justice Department and the White House. That policy is designed to protect the Department's criminal and civil law enforcement decisions and its legal judgments from partisan or other inappropriate influence. We also issued a policy to better protect the freedom and independence of the press by restricting the use of compulsory process to obtain information from or records of members of the news media. The second priority is keeping our country safe from all threats, foreign and domestic, while also protecting our civil liberties. We are strengthening our 200 joint terrorism task forces, which are the essential hubs for international and domestic counterterrorism cooperation across all levels of government. For FY22, we are seeking more than $1.5 billion, a 12% increase for our counterterrorism work. We are also taking aggressive steps to counter cyber threats, whether from nation states, terrorists, or common criminals. In April, we launched both a comprehensive cyber review and a ransomware and digital extortion task force. In June, we seized a $2.3 million ransom payment made in Bitcoin to the group that targeted Colonial Pipeline. Keeping our country safe also requires reducing violent crime and gun violence. In May, we announced a comprehensive violent crime strategy which deploys all of our relevant departmental components to those ends. 
We also launched five cross-jurisdictional strike forces to disrupt illegal firearms trafficking in key corridors across the country and to support local police departments and help them build trust with the communities they serve our FY22 budget requests over $1 billion for grants. We are likewise committed to keeping our country safe from violent drug trafficking networks that are, among other things, fueling the overdose epidemic. Opioids, including illegal, fent including illegal fentanyl, caused nearly 70,000 fatal overdose address uh, deaths in 2020. We will continue to use all resources at our disposal to save lives. Finally, keeping our country safe requires protecting its democratic institutions, including the one we sit in today, from violent attack. As the committee is well aware, the Department is engaged in one of the most sweeping investigations in its history in connection with the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The Department's third core priority is protecting civil rights. This was a founding purpose when the Justice Department was established in 1870, Today, the Civil Rights Division's work remains vital to safeguarding voting rights, prosecuting hate crimes, ensuring constitutional policing, and stopping unlawful discrimination. This year, we doubled the size of the Civil Rights Division's voting section, and our FY22 budget seeks the largest ever increase for the division, totaling more than 15%. We have appointed department-wide coordinators for our hate crimes work, and we have stepped up our support for the Community Relations Service and the department-wide efforts to advance environmental justice and tackle climate change. We are also revitalizing and expanding our work to ensure equal access to justice. In the days ahead, we look forward to working with Congress to restore a standalone access to justice office within the department dedicated to addressing the most urgent legal needs of communities across America. In addition to these core priorities, another important area of departmental focus is ensuring antitrust enforcement, reinvigorating that enforcement, combating fraud, and protecting consumers. We are aggressively enforcing our antitrust laws by challenging anti-competitive mergers and exclusionary conduct, and by prosecuting price fixing and allocation schemes that harm both consumers and workers. In FY22, we are seeking additional resources to reinvigorate antitrust enforcement across the board. We also stood up the COVID-19 Fraud Enforcement Task Force to bring to justice those who defrauded the government of federal dollars meant for the most vulnerable among us. In sum, in seven months, the Justice Department has accomplished a lot of important work for the American people, and there is much more to be done. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today. And I look forward to your questions. Mr. Attorney General, in the 2013 decision Shelby County versus Holder, the Supreme Court gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, rendering its preclearance provision inoperative. As a direct result of this decision, the right to vote has come under a renewed and steady assault, and states have spent the past eight years enacting a slew of barriers to voting that target or impact communities of color and other historically disenfranchised groups. Before this committee in August, Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark testified that, quote, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was truly the heart of the act and called it the department's most important tool for safeguarding voting rights in our country. Why is Section 5 preclearance so crucial to combating discrimination, discriminatory voting practices? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
Voting, the right to vote is a fundamental aspect of our democracy. In many ways, it is the right from which all other rights occur. The Voting Rights Act was a gem of American legislation, as President Ronald Reagan said, and as all other presidents on both sides of the aisle have said. A key part of that um, provision was Section 5, as you said. This was a pre-clearance provision, which required in specified states where there had been discriminatory practices that uh, provisions for changes in patterns or practices of voting should be submitted to the department for preclearance to determine whether they violated the act. There was an, another alternative. If, if a state did not like the result from the Justice Department, it could go to a court and get a resolution there. But the great idea of preclearance was to allow advance review before these things went into effect, rather than require the Justice Department on a one-by-one -one basis after the fact. It makes it extremely difficult uh, to attack um, uh, unlawful prescriptions on voting practices. Thank you. Attorney, Assistant Attorney General Clark testified that Section 2 is no, is no substitute for the important swift preemptive review that was provided by way of Section 5 preclearance process. The full impact of the Supreme Court's recent decision in Brnovich versus DNC on Section 2 remains to be seen. However, in the absence of an operational Section 5 preclearance regime, what steps has the Justice Department taken to increase enforcement of voting rights under Section 2? Well, um, Section 2 is a remaining tool. It's extraordinarily important, and it does give us some uh, impact. Um, to, in, in order to better effectuate that provision, we have doubled the size of the voting rights section because it will take more people to evaluate state laws on a one-by-one -one basis. So we are going about doing that. We have brought one case, as, as you know, with respect to changes in Georgia. We are looking carefully at other states, and we are looking carefully at the redistricting, which is occurring as we speak now as a result of the decennial sentence, uh, census. Um, we uh, continue to do that um, and, and vigorously uh, make sure that Section 2 is appropriately enforced. But if you should find that uh, a given state's reapportionment, for example, was uh, uh, unconstitutional and you sued, it could take six or eight years uh, for those suits to be resolved, as we have seen, and that's one reason, another reason for the necessity for Section 5 preclearance. My time is short, so I have only one last question for you. The country and the Congress is still reeling from the events of January 6th, and the Select Committee is diligently pursuing its investigation into the insurrection. This week, Chairman Thompson and his colleagues voted to hold in contempt Steve Bannon, who failed to comply with the Select Committee's subpoenas. And the, measures, and the measure will be taken up by the House later today. Unfortunately, the actions of individuals like Mr. Bannon are not new to us. Many committees, including this one, repeatedly faced obstruction from the prior administration and the former President's loyal allies. Congress, however, is not an enforcement body and looks to the department to handle criminal matters when appropriate. So I ask you, Mr. Attorney General, regardless of politics, will the department follow the facts and the law and expeditiously consider the referrals put forth by the select committee if and when they are approved by the full house? So the department recognizes the important oversight role that this committee, the House of Representatives, and the Senate play uh, with respect to um, the executive branch. Um, I will say what uh, spokesperson for the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Columbia said, I think, yesterday or the day before. The House of Representatives votes um, uh, for referral of a contempt charge. 
Um, the, the, uh, um, the Department of Justice will do what it always does in such circumstances, will apply the facts and the law and make a decision consistent with the principles of prosecution. I want to take you to uh, January 6th. It's a very common topic here for uh, people. Um, has any defendant involved in the January 6th events been charged with insurrection? I don't believe so. Uh, well, that is the word most used by Democrats here on Capitol Hill by January 6th, but no one has been charged with it that we could find either. How many protesters on January 6th were charged with obstructing an official proceeding for four to six hours? Do you know? I don't know the exact number. Uh, obviously, there are 650 who were arrested, some for assaulting officers, some for obstructing proceedings, some for conspiring to uh, obstruct proceedings. I can get you the numbers for each of the specific. Well, thank you. I'd be interested in getting that number. But regarding the men who broke the glass in the two doors there at the speaker's lobby when the two Capitol Police had been standing there moved to the side to allow them access. Uh, were any of those people who broke glass and did damage to those doors working for the FBI or other federal law enforcement entities? I, uh, and this is an ongoing criminal investigation, and I'm really not at liberty to discuss. There have been some filings um, um, of, uh, in the nature of discovery, which has been provided to the defendants. Uh, but I, uh, other than that, I can't uh, discuss this now. Well, we've seen some of those filings that talk about persons one through 20-something. Uh, were those persons one designated by number, were those people that were employed by the FBI or federal uh, entities, or were they confidential informants? Again, I, I don't um, know those specifics, but I do not believe that any of the people you're mentioning um, charged in the indictment uh, were either one. Uh, was a determination ever made as to who repeatedly struck Roseanne Boylan in the head with a rod before she died? Uh, again, I think this was a matter that was investigated um, by the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, the Justice Department investigated uh, Texas, five secure juvenile facilities, finding sexual abuse. Can I quickly get an answer of working with the Justice Department, encouraging standardized conditions for these facilities since the facts were gross in terms of the abuse of those children? I think you're investigating Georgia as well. Mr. General? So we are investigating um, Texas, um, and that was uh, announced, um, and I believe the governor welcomed uh, that investigation, um, and that's being done by a combination of the Civil Rights Division and all four U.S. attorneys' offices in Texas. Thank you, sir. Uh, with respect to compassionate release, uh, which came about through the CARES Act, we found that in the BOP, 39 percent of Americans' federal prisons contracted COVID-19. Uh, 2000, according to a New York Times article, 2,700 prisoners have died. There is a potential of the uh, compassionate release being eliminated and those out, but also I found that it's not being utilized uh, appropriately now. Uh, the attorney, Inspector General, said uh, that BOP was not prepared with the issue, uh, was not prepared to deal with the issue of compassionate release on a granular level. And of course, the director himself said prisons are not made for social distancing. 
My question is, will you uh, monitor what is going on with compassionate release, either in terms of people returning and or the utilization, the fair utilization of compassionate release in the BOP uh, under this issue of COVID? Yes. Uh, Congressman, the answer is yes. Uh, obviously, the pandemic was not something that the Bureau of Prisons was prepared for or, frankly, most American institutions were not prepared for. It created a lot of difficulties. It did lead to compassionate release, leaving people in home confinement. Um, I don't know the specifics that you're mentioning, but we are certainly reviewing carefully how the Bureau is responding now to this uh, uh, dangerous circumstance of COVID-19. Thank you, General. Uh, we found, uh, as it relates to the women in prison, 6,600 are serving huge sentences of life, parole, um, uh, life with parole, life without parole, virtual life, etc. 86% of women in jail have experienced sexual violence, 77% have experienced intimate partner violence. Uh, this has given a report as it relates to women of color. Uh, can uh, we uh, have a more vigorous trauma mental health uh, protocol for women in prison? So I federal. Federal, yeah. So I think an important part of the First Step Act uh, uh, requires us to uh, be careful about those things, and we've asked for additional funding for that purpose. And uh, Deputy Attorney General is uh, monitoring the way in which the Bureau of Prisons uh, spends the, that money and establishes those programs. Thank you. Uh, can I quickly ask, with VAWA, which has not been passed by the House, uh, would that passage help you do even a more effective job dealing with violence against women like domestic violence, which is Domestic Violence Awareness, Awareness Month this month? Would it be, help you be more effective in prosecuting yes, and moving forward? Yes, it would. We are strongly supportive of reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act. Attorney General Garland, do you agree with the National School Board Association that parents who attend school board meetings and speak passionately against the inclusion of divisive programs like critical race theory should be characterized as domestic terrorists? I do not believe that uh, parents who uh, uh, testify, speak, argue with, complain about school boards and schools should be classified as domestic terrorists or any kind of criminals. Uh, parents have been complaining about the education of their children and about uh, school boards since there were such things as school boards and public education. This is totally protected by the First Amendment. I take your point that true threats of violence are not protected by the First Amendment. Those are the things we're worried about here. Okay, could I just Those are the only things we're worried about here. Okay, thank you so much for that. Is there a legal precedent for the Department of Justice to, investi to investigate peaceful protests or parent parental involvement at public school uh, meetings? Uh, uh, just to say again, we are not investigating peaceful protests uh, or parent involvement at school board meetings. There's no uh, precedent for doing that, and we would never do that. We are only concerned about violence, threats of violence against school administrators, teachers, staff, People like your mother, a teacher. That is what we're worried about. We are worried okay. about that across the board. We're worried Thank about you. threats against members of Congress. We're worried about threats against police. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that. I'm also a member of the Education and Labor Committee. Uh, on October 7th, Republican members of this committee sent you a letter, uh, you and uh, Secretary Cardona, expressing a concern about uh, disparaging remarks that the Secretary had made against parents. In this letter, we request that you brief the Education and Labor Committee before taking action on your threats to uh, parents' lawful expression of legitimate concerns. Uh, have you received that letter, and do you plan on testifying before the House Education and Labor Committee? I'm sorry, I don't recollect the letter, but I'll ask my staff to find out where it is. 
The Senate Judiciary Committee had a report recently about the attempts of President Trump to get Department of Justice employees involved in the Stop the Steal campaign, trying to subvert the election. Are any of those people that were involved in that still at the Justice Department? Um, you know, all the bold-faced names that I know about are, were political appointees, all of whom are not at the department. I, I don't know the answer uh, otherwise, but I, I, I don't believe so. Amy Berman Jackson tried to release some records concerning Bill Barr's downplaying of the, uh, Trump's obstruction and the Mueller investigation. Uh, this, this committee was looking into the emoluments caused violations of the Trump Hotel and got an order to get, see some records, and yet the DOJ appealed. Do you believe that, that transparency, those two situations are ones where transparency was not permitted to the American public, as well as the whole Mueller report, which hasn't been redacted? Well, with respect to Judge Jackson's ruling, I respect Judge Jackson. She was a former colleague. I respect her very much. Uh, we just have a difference of opinion with respect to the Freedom of Information Act deliberative privilege exception. And we believe that in that circumstance, the memorandum which was given to uh, Attorney General Barr is protected by that so that all attorneys general can receive uh, honest um, advice uh, from their subordinates. Uh, that matter is before the D.C. Circuit now. Everything I've just said is in our papers, so I'm not saying anything outside the record, and it will be resolved by the D.C. Circuit. On September the 4th, 2021, DOJ announced an investigation into Georgia prison conditions. The New York Times reported that over 25 incarcerated persons died last year by confirmed or suspected homicide in Georgia prisons, and 18 homicides, as well as numerous stabbings and beatings, have been reported this year. What is the timeline for this investigation, and will you commit to briefing the committee and uh, the Georgia delegation on the results of the inquiry? Uh, we are doing that investigation. It's pursuant to a statute which authorizes the Civil Rights Division to bring those kinds of cases. Um, um, I can't tell you what the timeline is. These kind of things t take a considerable amount of time. Um, and I'm not sure what the re legal requirements are with respect to briefings outside. This is now in court. And so I'm not sure what additional material can be provided outside of what we provide in court, but we'll look into it for you. Thank you. Much of what is known about conditions in Georgia prisons is derived from social media posts, including video footage posted during a prison riot last year. How are social media and the use of smuggled smartphones by inmates aiding DOJ in its civil rights investigation of Georgia's prisons? Sorry, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll uh, see if I can ask at the Civil Rights Division how they're using that material. All right, thank you, uh, Mr. Attorney, uh, Mr. Uh, General uh, Garland. The Sackler family has used every trick in the book to escape accountability for their role in the opioid epidemic, including abusing the bankruptcy system to secure civil immunity from their victims. And now Johnson & Johnson has scrambled its organizational charts to put tens of thousands of legal claims into bankruptcy to avoid further liability for its uh, cancer-causing talcum powder. Do you believe culpable individuals and corporations should be allowed to use the shell game to shield themselves from liability? 
Um, I, I don't know anything about the second uh, example that you gave. As to the first, um, the Justice Department's um, bankruptcy trustee has weighed in to appeal the decision to uh, immunize from personal liability, and I think that matter is now pending in court. Last month, in response to the surge of overdoses caused by fentanyl and fake pills, the DEA issued its first public safety alert in six years and has ramped up enforcement efforts resulting in the seizure of over 11.3 million pills and the 810 arrests. In a Washington Post article uh, that entitled, With Overdose Deaths Soaring, DEA Warns About Fentanyl Meth-Laced Pills from September 27th that I ask unanimous consent to submit for the record. Mr. Chairman. Without objection. Um, in that article, it, it said that young people assume that a pill purchased online must be made in a reputable lab and must not be too dangerous. We are in the midst, according to DEA Administrator Milgram, we are in the midst of an overdose crisis and the counterfeit pills are driving so much of it. Many of these counterfeit pills that alarm the DEA are being sold on social media sites, Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. The, uh, Milgram said that the drug dealer isn't just standing on a street corner anymore, it's sitting in a pocket on your phone. Attorney General, what more should social media companies be doing to prevent young people from finding deadly drugs on their platform, and what more can you do about it? Well, with respect to the latter question, what we can do about it, the DEA has uh, intensified focus on this problem of fentanyl uh, crossing the border from Mexico, uh, made from precursor, uh, uh, which often come from the People's Republic of China. Um, this is a very dangerous circumstance. The DEA administration, much of the, uh, I think the article that you're referring to comes from a, a press conference that the DEA administrator uh, gave. Um, a, a significant portion of these pills are lethal overdose with one pill. Um, and this is an extraordinarily dangerous problem um, that we are putting our full attention to. And Attorney General Garland, I assure you that there is strong, notwithstanding much of what else you'll hear today, strong bipartisan support in this Congress to combat the threats of uh, fentanyl rising overdoses. Finally, yesterday the person who shot and killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School injured 17 more and traumatized my entire community, pleaded guilty in a Broward County courtroom. Many Parkland families strongly believe that gun companies must also be held responsible for the dangerous marketing of assault weapons. Unfortunately, the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, known as PLACA, has blocked countless victims and surviving family members from their day in court. The law provides broad immunity against civil, uh, and civil lawsuits unique to the gun industry. Unfortunately, the Department of Justice has a long history of intervening in civil cases filed by gun violence survivors to defend this law. The question is whether you believe, Attorney General Garland, that repealing PLACA to hold gun makers accountable for their products and the marketing of those products could improve gun safety in America. So um, the President has already stated his opposition to that statute. But our obligation in the Justice Department is to defend the constitutionality of statutes that we can reasonably uh, argue are constitutional. That's the position that the Justice Department takes, whether we like the statute or not. Uh, we defend the constitutionality of Congress's work. Uh, it's my understanding that medication can only be prescribed by medical personnel, not by law enforcement. But I want to know if there is any policy around prohibiting uh, chemical restraints. So I'm not familiar with that specifically. The Deputy Attorney General is doing a review of all of our use of force policies. That's where the carotid holds and the choke holds um, um, uh, policies uh, came out of. 
Um, I, and I, I don't know about the question you're asking, but I'd, I'd be happy to have staff get back to you. Great, and uh, once again, I appreciate uh, DOJ trying to step in where we weren't successful in the Senate in terms of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, and I wanted to know if you could expand on further action that the Department of Justice will be taking in lieu of us passing legislation. Well, I mean, there are a lot of things that we're doing. We, are, we have um, 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 begun again to uh, look for at uh, pattern of practice investigations of police departments uh, uh, for patterns of unconstitutional uh, policing as uh, provided uh, by statute that Congress did pass um, and gave us the authority to do. Uh, we will again use consent decrees uh, where they are appropriate. We've uh, issued memoranda with uh, quite specific standards about when they are appropriate and when not. Um, they may include monitors, may not, but again with new standards about when monitors are appropriate. So I think that's you know one certainly one very significant area. I think one of the other members mentioned that we have the three of those proceedings, and we also have in Texas. Uh, proceeding about uh, the youth uh, jails and the youth prisons, so that follows up on your on your other question, where we're doing those kind of investigations. Do you agree that race is a suspect classification? Yes, that's what the Supreme Court has held for since the late 1950s, early thank, 1960s. Thank, thank you very much for that. Um, so the so-called American Rescue Plan earmarked billions of dollars in United States Department of Agriculture debt relief based solely on race. Why are you and your department defending the American Rescue Plan that discriminates based on race? So I, I believe you're referring to a district court case in which that's at issue, and so I can't really say it, uh, any more than is in the pleadings in that case, but it, it, this has to do with whether there are additional indicia uh, in addition to race that are used in making um, these um, um, grants, and whether there is sufficient evidence of historical uh, practices so, that will tie so, it to race. So, sir, it's very explicit in the bill that the Democrats wrote in this Congress and President Biden signed into law. They said, this is based on race. I mean, doesn't this meet the standard of that is pure discrimination? The, the question I, that our country has tried to rid of itself of? I believe the question has to do with historical patterns of discrimination against black farmers, and I believe that, uh, that, that uh, the purpose of, of what's going on in the district court now is uh, examining the record to determine whether there is a sufficient record in that respect. So it sounds, like you, you, there is. It sounds like you support the legislation then. The question for us is the constitutionality of the legislation. That's the only question before us. And the, uh, as, as I uh, said with respect to another statute, the Justice Department defends the constitutionality of statutes that can be reasonably construed as constitutional, and we believe that statute can be, yes. Voter fraud, uh, if proven, a serious crime that carries a five-year prison sentence, is that right? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure about the sentence, but yes, if proven, it's a serious crime. And the Department of Justice is responsible for investigating and prosecuting voter fraud, is that right? With respect to federal voting, yes. Now your uh, predecessor, Bill Barr, publicly acknowledged that the Department of Justice had uncovered zero evidence of widespread fraud in the 2020 election. Is that still accurate? Uh, it's my recollection that that is what he uh, concluded, and I don't know of any evidence to the contrary. Right, there's no evidence that voter fraud impacted the outcome of the 2020 presidential election, true? 
That's correct. That's correct. It's fair to say that despite a global pandemic and record voter turnout, as prior members of the Trump administration have acknowledged the 2020 election was the most secure in American history? Now, that is the conclusion of the Justice Department and of the intelligence community and of the Department of Homeland Security, yes. And despite the fact that there's no evidence of so-called fraud, this year at least 19 states have enacted 33 laws making it harder for everyday Americans to vote. And in the aftermath of the January 6th insurrection, instead of running toward democracy, there are people throughout this country, some have run away from this democracy, and they've unleashed an epidemic of voter suppression across the land. So let me just ask a few questions about some of the things that have occurred. How does banning churches and civic groups from giving food and water to voters, some of whom have been waiting in line for hours, prevent or address voter fraud? Uh, so, Congressman, I don't want to talk too much about that because that is the subject of our lawsuit against the state of Georgia, but you have identified a segment of that statute that we have um, uh, challenged as uh, being unlawful. And does restricting the times that someone can cast their vote the business hours when many Americans are at work relate in any way rationally to protecting the integrity uh, of our elections? So let me just talk generally about this. So I believe that every eligible voter should be able to vote and that there should be no restrictions on, um, on voters that make it more difficult for them to vote unless they're absolutely necessary. Um, the Justice Department is limited in its ability to bring cases and must find discriminatory uh, intent or effect. So those are the kind of uh, cases that are covered by Section 2. But as a general matter, my view is that everyone should have uh, the ability to vote as readily and easily as possible. You directed the FBI to act with speed. Meetings in 30 days is what you said. You directed the FBI to have these meetings nationwide, coordinated by United States attorneys. Three days later, I and 30-some-odd members of Congress asked for advance notice of these meetings, indications of what content would be shared there. We asked for that response within 10 days, given the time frame you set forth in your memo. More than half of that time has passed, no response. Are these meetings occurring? So uh, let me just be clear one more again here. This memo is expressly directed against threats, of violence and violence. The federal statutes um, that are relevant, I'm prosecutors sorry, are well aware of where the First Amendment line is. This is addressed to prosecutors and members of law enforcement. They, these are the kinds of statutes that we deal with every single day. Well, they know I'm not the sure line. you deal with it in this way, Mr. Attorney General. Have you, have, are the meetings occurring? Do you know? I, I don't know whether they're ongoing, but I expect and hope that they are going, yes, because I did ask that they take place. You do not have any report, or you have not pursued at all to know what the progress is of your directive to do this within 30 days. Have meetings in every judicial district across the country. You just don't know. I doubt there have been meetings in every jurisdiction. I expect there have been uh, some in some jurisdictions, and I hope so, because that's the purpose of the, mean, of, the, of the memo, to have meetings to discuss whether there's a problem, to discuss strategies, to discuss whether local law enforcement needs assistance or doesn't need assistance. That's the purpose of these meetings. 
would it be possible for the Justice Department for you to initiate the promulgation of a regulation that will require the NIC system to share information on prohibited purchasers uh, so that we can, in fact, respond to people who illegally bought guns in the thousands each year? I don't know. I don't know um, whether we are able to do that or not, but we'll certainly look into it. We are certainly uh, interested in closing all loopholes that will allow people who are, are prohibited from obtaining firearms uh, from obtaining them. Thank you, and I'll, I'll follow up with your staff. As you know, Mr. Attorney General, approximately a year ago, the Judiciary Committee released a 450-page report detailing the lack of competition plaguing the digital marketplace. This report was a culmination of a 16-month bipartisan investigation, and the report concluded that decades of flawed antitrust jurisprudence had made it nearly impossible for antitrust enforcers and private plaintiffs to get courts to stop harmful mergers and anti-competitive conduct in the digital markets. Courts have become fixated on market definition litigation, even where there is direct evidence that a firm possesses market power and is engaging in anti-competitive conduct. I know you cannot express support for specific pieces of legislation without a lengthy White House process, but my question is, do you believe Congress should update the antitrust laws to give enforcement authorities additional tools and courts additional guidance on how to ensure free and fair competition in the digital economy? Yes, we're supportive of uh, uh, updating the antitrust laws. I can't speak specifically without looking at particular ones. I, I would say, though, that uh, the antitrust laws do permit us to be quite aggressive with respect to some of the kinds of exclusionary uh, policies and uh, practices that you're talking about mergers, um, and we have been quite aggressive uh, since we came to office, um, and I've also asked for, in the uh, FY22 budget, for additional uh, personnel for the division uh, so that we can aggressively police this area. I mean, one particular problem is there are a huge new number of merger filings, and um, for us to possibly review the competitive or anti-competitive nature of those filings, we're going to need additional people uh, and additional assistance. Yeah, and we are, are fighting very hard to be sure that you have additional resources to get this work done. Uh, in March, the Subcommittee on Antitrust heard testimony from Judge Diane Wood of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Judge Wood explained that the Supreme Court's antitrust jurisprudence over the past four decades has contributed to under-enforcement. She told the Subcommittee that legislative changes to the statutes may be appropriate, and I quote, so that anti-competitive practices do not go unredressed because antitrust standards are overly onerous or the available remedies are either too weak or otherwise ineffective. Can you identify for us, and if you can't do it today, if you could give us some thought, are there uh, challenges the department faces in enforcing the antitrust laws currently? Are there particular types of categories of anti-competitive practices that are going unaddressed because of these challenges? And what additional tools or authorities uh, does the department need to overcome these challenges and aggressively enforce uh, antitrust law. So I'm not uh, in a position to specify those now, but our staff will get back to you. I, I, I'll be happy to do that. General Garland, in 1973, an Office of Legal Counsel memo outlined the parameters for indicting a sitting president and said that you could not do that. 27 years later, that memo was updated to reaffirm that principle. 21 years later, we have seen a former president test the bounds of presidential authority and I'm wondering, would you commit to revisiting that principle, whether or not a president, while sitting, should be indicted? Well, like an Office of Legal Counsel uh, memorandum, particularly when they've been um, uh, reviewed and uh, reaffirmed by uh, attorneys general and assistant attorneys general of different parties, it's extremely rare uh, to reverse them. And, uh, 
we have the same kind of um, uh, you know, respect for our precedents as the, the courts do. Um, and I think it's also um, would not normally be under consideration unless uh, there was an actual issue arising, and I'm not aware of that issue arising now. So I don't, don't want to make a commitment on this question. I don't want to talk about any specific case, but just in general, should a former president's suspected crimes, once they're out of office, be investigated by the Department of Justice? Again, uh, without, um, I, I don't want to make any discussion about any particular former president or anything else. The memorandum that you're talking about is limited to acts while uh, the per person was in office, and that's all I can say. And should that decision be made only after an investigation takes place rather than deciding beforehand a general principle of we're not going to investigate a former president at all? Would you agree that if there are facts, those should be looked at? Again, um, you're, you're pushing me very close to a line that I do not intend to cross. Um, we always looked at the facts and we always look at the law uh, in any matter before making a determination. General Garland, uh, my colleague, Mr. Deutsch, asked you about gun manufacturer liability, and I wanted to follow up and ask, does the recent Pennsylvania decision, which has been vacated and re-argued, change your office's reasoning and thinking, and would you commit to re-examining DOJ's posture in such cases as the law changes in different states? And ask you to refresh my recollection as to the recent Pennsylvania decision about which you're speaking. I'm sorry. Sure. No, uh, so I have a lot of cases in my head, but that one doesn't come right up. Last year, a Pennsylvania state appeals court held the Protecting Lawful Commerce and Arms Act unconstitutional. And, and so just asking, in light of that, would you see, commit to re-examining as new cases come in? The Justice Department has taken the position in court that we're going to defend that statute uh, um, uh, as constitutional, and I don't see uh, a ground for uh, changing our mind. I, I expect that the considerations that the judges in the Pennsylvania State Court were brought to the attention of the Solicitor General's office. Thank you. Recent reports had former President Clinton in California. He fell ill uh, and was also reported that he had been there to raise, uh, raise money for the Clinton Foundation. Um, in 2017, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions launched a probe to scrutinize whether donors to the Clinton Foundation had been given special treatment by Hillary Clinton when um, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. Uh, this investigation wound down in January of 2020. Uh, in September of 2020, press reports indicated that Special Counsel Durham's team was seeking information on the FBI's handling of the Clinton Foundation investigation. Uh, during your confirmation hearing, if you remember, uh, you were asked if you would actually ensure that the special counsel, special counsel Durham, would have sufficient staff and other resources to complete that investigation. Uh, now, obviously, um, you've had uh, more than six months on the job, and uh, can you commit to allowing the special counsel Durham's investigation to proceed um, and, and obviously uh, free from any political influence. Yeah, let me just say first about the money. Uh, we're now in a new fiscal year, and as everyone knows, uh, Mr. Durham is continuing. So I think you can readily assume that his budget has been approved. Um, we don't normally make a statement about those things, but since he's still in, in action, 
um, the provisions of the of the uh, stat of the regulation, which require approval of his budget for the next fiscal year, are public. So I think you can draw. You would know if he weren't continuing uh, uh, to do his work. I'll take that as a confirmation that the investigation is continuing into the Clinton Foundation, and I think that's important that we well, ultimately get to I don't want to say what it's about. That's up to Mr. Durham. I, I, I'm not uh, determining what he's investigating. Very good, very good. If I could move on. Um, another thing that came up during your confirmation hearing, you said that the DOJ would be under uh, your, quote, protection for the purpose of preventing any kind of partisan or improper motive in making any kind of investigation or prosecution. And that's the end of your quote. Um, but, you know, I think there's many people uh, that I interact with on a regular basis back in my congressional district that it appears that when you have tackled and targeted specific areas since your tenure began, um, it's been about election integrity measures, pro-life initiatives, and, you know, what's been discussed many times uh, here today, the silencing of, of parents that uh, kind of are very upset about what's going on with some of the school boards. So it appears that you said one thing and made that commitment in your confirmation hearings, but at the same time, uh, it seems that DOJ is specifically targeting many issues that I think I, I have described as conservative issues. I w I'm wondering if you could respond to that. On the last point, I hope you can assure your constituents that we are not trying, the Justice Department is not trying to chill their whatever objections they want to make to um, um, uh, school boards. Our only concern is violence and threats of violence. So if you could make that clear to your constituents, perhaps that would help on that question. On the, on the other questions, some of theirs, these are policy differences that are natural between one administration and another. Um, different views about uh, what the law is. Um, there will be people who, uh, from the Democratic Party who disagree with my determinations, and you've already heard some of those. And there will be people from the Republican Party who will disagree with my determinations about our filings in civil, civil cases. Now, that comes with the territory. That's, that's what happens to the Attorney General. I'm doing my best to ensure that we make decisions on the facts and the law. And when I said I would protect our, our people from partisan influence with respect to investigations and prosecutions, I meant that, and I, I continue to do that, regardless of uh, you know, which side of, uh, of the aisle is criticizing me for it. In 2014 and 2015, Asian Americans, such as Sherry Chen and Professor Xi and others, were wrongfully arrested by the Department of Justice, charged with alleged spying for China, and then months later, all their charges were dropped, but not after their lives were ruined and they incurred massive legal bills. As we looked into these cases, the only thing that was the same among all of them is that the defendants happened to look like me. They happened to be Asian American. In response, then Attorney General Loretta Lynch ordered implicit bias training for all her law enforcement agents and prosecutors at the Department of Justice. My question to you is, will you commit to implementing implicit bias training at the Department of Justice. So I, 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 I thank you for uh, your comments. Um, as, as you, I, I know you know I'm greatly attuned to this problem. That's why the very first memorandum I issued when I came to the Justice Department uh, 
was to investigate hate crimes um, on a nationwide basis, and part particularly against the AAPI community. That's why we have made all of the changes um, required by the No Hate Act, uh, most of them before the act was even passed, um, because we were ready uh, on, that, uh, on that route. Uh, there's uh, no excuse uh, for this kind of discrimination, and uh, it's the obligation of the Justice Department to protect people. Thank you. So let me bring attention to a study that came out that shows that this problem is wider than we feared. It was conducted by a visiting scholar to the South Texas College of Law in the Committee of 100, a nonprofit. They analyzed economic espionage cases brought by the department between 1996 and 2020, and the findings are deeply disturbing. Uh, this study showed that one in three Asian Americans accused of espionage were falsely accused. It found that Asian defendants were punished twice as severely as non-Asian defendants. And it showed that the Department of Justice issued press releases much more frequently under these cases if the defendant happened to have an Asian name versus a Western name. So I'm gonna ask you again, will you commit to implementing implicit bias training that then Attorney General Loretta Lynch uh, had directed at the Department of Justice. So my understanding is that that was required by the, uh, I think, I can't remember the name, maybe the No Fear Act, I can't remember the name, and um, um, the uh, bar on doing such uh, training um, was rescinded by pre the President in an executive order, I think on the very first day of the new administration, um, and, um, and so of course uh, we will uh, go ahead with what was required by the statute, including implicit bias training, yes. So if you could look into that more, I appreciate it. So thank you. I'd like to now talk about a case brought under the China Initiative that happened under your watch. The case of Professor Aming Hu, who was also wrongfully accused of spying for China. The evidence against him was so flimsy that a federal judge dismissed the case on a Rule 29 motion. I'm a former prosecutor. I know that those motions are rarely, if ever, granted. The judge found that even viewing all the evidence in a light most favorable to the prosecution, no rational jury could conclude that the defendant violated the law. If we look at one of the darkest periods of our nation's history, over 100,000 Americans who happen to be of Japanese descent were interned because our government could not figure out the difference between the Imperial Army of Japan and Americans who happen to be of Japanese descent. I'm asking the department not to repeat that similar type of mistake, and I'm asking you if you will look into the China Initiative to make sure it's not putting undue pressure on the department to wrongfully target people of Asian descent. Internment of Japanese Americans. A terrible stain on American people and on the American government and American history. I can assure you, that kind of racist behavior will not be repeated. There is a new uh, Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division who is pending confirmation. I'm sure that when he is confirmed, which hopefully will be in the next few days, maybe in the next few weeks, we'll review all of the activities in the department, in his division, and make a determination of which cases to pursue and which ones not. I can assure you that cases will not be pursued based on discrimination, but only on facts justifying them. Does DOJ headquarters have final approval on all plea agreements before they are offered to a defendant? 
So I, I don't want to discuss uh, these investigations in that respect. I would say that uh, the, uh, um, the Justice Department and the U.S. Attorney's Office working together have guidelines for the kinds of pleas that can be accepted so that there are not, uh, there's not, I don't want to use the word discrimination in the, in the racial sense, but that there's not unequal treatment between people who uh, uh, did the same thing. Uh, we can't have every individual prosecutor following a different set of plea arguments. So that's the extent to which um, that, that's um, 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 being organized. This is a, and the question you ask, which is why does it take so long? This is really not long at all. I've, I've been in lots of criminal investigations that took way longer. We've arrested 650 people already, and keep in mind that most of them were not investigated on the, uh, arrested on the spot because the Capitol Police were overwhelmed. So they were people who had to be found, and they had to be found by uh, sometimes our, our looking at our own uh, video data, sometimes from citizen sleuths around the country uh, identifying people. Then they have to be brought back to Washington, D.C. Then discovery of terabytes of information has to be provided. Uh, and then all this was occurring while there was a pandemic, and some of the grand juries were not fully operating, and some of the, um, the courtrooms were not fully operating. So I I'm extremely proud of the work that the uh, uh, prosecutors are doing in this case and the agents are doing in this case. They're working 24-7 on this. Thank, thank you, General Garland. That's helpful. Um, I do want to talk about disparity, actually, of, of prosecutions. Federal judges have criticized the department's approach to letting many defendants stay at home or travel for vacation. One judge said, quote, there have to be consequences for participating in an attempted violent overthrow of the government beyond sitting at home. And yet the Wall Street Journal reports that you've told DOJ officials that jailing rioters who weren't hardcore extremists could further radicalize them. Uh, General Garland, do you believe that such statements are appropriate to make as the person overseeing these prosecutions? I, I, I don't know where that, that report comes from. My recollection of this is in a completely different context. That is, I, I worry that there will be radicalization in the Bureau of Prisons um, when people are, um, uh, and this is radicalization that has occurred with prison gangs, um, with uh, white supremacist groups in prisons, um, and with uh, radical uh, Middle Eastern groups in prisons. And I con was concerned that the Bureau of Prisons have a procedure for ensuring that that radicalization doesn't spread across prison populations. General I Garland, I, I don't know how to. you could further radicalize people who have attempted to overthrow the government. Um, let's just contrast the department's approach to the George Floyd protests. A participant at a George Floyd protest faced up to five years in felony charges for inciting a riot via social media. In contrast, three white supremacists at the 2017 Charlottesville rally received prison sentences between two and three years for their violence, assault of protesters, and conspiracy to riot. And despite a series of social media posts and videos on January 6th, only one person was ever charged with a felony. I understand all of the challenges that you are facing with what you've mentioned, and I, I, I do appreciate that. Uh, but I am concerned about the disparity of the way sentencing is occurring. Is it fair to say that the department does and should consider deterrence and the gravity of crimes when pursuing both sentencing and pretrial confinement or detention? 
the answer to that is yes, but the ultimate determination on both sentencing and pretrial detention is up to the judge and not to the department. There are some judges that are criticizing um, uh, uh, the kind of charges we're bringing being uh, uh, not harsh enough, but there are other judges who are criticizing the same charges as being too harsh. Uh, as, as I mentioned before, this you know, comes with the territory of being a prosecutor. As you know, uh, your reach is global when it comes to overseas activities such as the bombing that occurred in Kabul. So the, uh, the killing of 26 uh, August of 13 U.S. troops falls under your jurisdiction, is correct? Or at least the FBI is, is Well, the FBI can participate. Um, it's likely also DOD, but it's some combination, yes. Well, the areas of concern, uh, media reports, uh, both uh, and public and private statements, indicate that the bomber was, in fact, an individual who had been released from the, uh, the detention center there in Kabul. Can you confirm that? I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. And Can you uh, respond for the record uh, from, uh, I mean, obviously the FBI does know. It, it's leaked out enough that I think that it needs to be made official. To, uh, to the extent that it would be permissible, um, and it's not classified information, then of course we'll get back to you and I'll ask my staff to, to look into this. Well, the, the, the records of those incarcerated at the, uh, at the detention center were public uh, and certainly uh, somebody who has blown themselves to bits would enjoy very few residual privacy rights, I would assume. I don't think it will be a question of privacy rights. Here. Okay. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure we had that. The important point, though, is, in my view, is that there are 4,999 or more other individuals who were released who were free to roam the streets of Kabul uh, on the very days that we were evacuating. I was in Qatar last week, uh, and it was reported to us in unclassified sessions that more than 20% of the individuals who boarded the aircraft uh, in Doha for the United States, more than 20% who came into there, uh, came in with no papers whatsoever. No Afghan papers, no U.S. papers, no other documentations, and that the documentation was produced based on oral testimony. They called it a paper passport. Based on the fact that uh, of the 60,000-plus people that passed through Dohar Qatar, 20% of them or more did not have any paperwork. Uh, of the remaining ones, at least 40% had only documentation that it was produced in Afghanistan. How do we know how many, we know some undoubtedly, but how many in fact made the way to the United States of the 5,000 plus people who were incarcerated for being ISIS terrorists and the like? How do we know who they are, where they are, and how many of them are in the United States, and what are you doing to discover further? Congressman, you've identified a very serious problem. There was a massive airlift of refugees out of Afghanistan at the very last moment. Um, and that required um, um, vetting at uh, not only at Qatar, uh, but also uh, at Ramstein and the other bases where people were moved to and then when they're moved to the United States. Attorney General Garland, I know you know, um, very familiar with the COPS grant program. As you know, it provides resources and assistance to state and local enforcement for things such as community policing, the Burn JAG grant, 
provides several initiatives for state and local jurisdiction, including technical assistance, training, personnel, equipment, supplies for law enforcement, prevention and education, crime, victim and witness assistance, mental health, and related law enforcement assistance programs. Attorney General Garland, if you would just take just a moment. I know you mentioned earlier that of uh, your commitment in terms of funding uh, to this very important initiative, but if you would just take a moment to talk about the effectiveness of the uh, DOJ grant programs and talk a little bit about the future of those resources. Well, I thank you for that opportunity. Um, this is part of our um, commitment both to keep the country safe and therefore to help state and local communities fight violence um, in their communities. Um, and uh, second, um, part of our obligation to um, uphold civil rights and so ensure that this be done with constitutional policing and also with respect to our first priority, that is uh, ensuring uh, adherence to the rule of law. So we have asked for, in the 2022 budget, uh, more than $1 billion in grants um, for state and local uh, police organizations. That's uh, $537 million for cops hiring and $513 million for burn JAG. Each of those are an increase for, for cops. It's an increase of $300 million over the previous year. For burn JAG, it's about $30 million increase uh, over the previous year. But there are other grant programs uh, that we've asked for money as well. Uh, one of them is quite important, is $100 million for a new community violence intervention initiatives. Uh, I met uh, with community violence uh, intervention uh, experts in Chicago um, earlier in the summer. Uh, I was extremely impressed by the results that they've had in taking uh, people who might otherwise um, end up um, with cr uh, in, in crime and uh, setting them on the straight path. Uh, that particular program was uh, actually a well-controlled study uh, uh, done by the University of Chicago, and it showed that these things actually work quite well. Attorney General, if we could just switch uh, gears for just a second. I want to talk about uh, election security and uh, threats that have been going on against election um, worker, poll workers. And I know that there was a task force established uh, in June of last year as a result of the rising threats, including death threats. How does the task force plan to coordinate with local and state enforcement and prosecutors to pursue cases against those who seek to intimidate election workers? So like all of our anti-violence initiatives from the violence initiatives we were just talking about, to Project Safe Neighborhoods, to the memorandum that we've been discussing earlier today, all of our uh, activity in this regard involves partnerships with and meetings with state and local law enforcement. And with respect to election um, workers, uh, we have, um, as part of our normal uh, sets of meetings with respect to uh, state and local um, uh, law enforcement, uh, we are meeting with them uh, to identify threats, to find out where um, federal uh, tools would be helpful. Uh, to find out where uh, assistance to state and locals would be uh, effective. There is a uh, FBI tip line for uh, threats to election workers, which are then funneled to the appropriate uh, FBI office uh, in, the, in the locality where the threats are occurring. Uh, this is similar to our work with respect to threats against members of Congress, the threats against judges, the threats against prosecutors, threats against police officers. All of these things are done with tight coordination with state and local law enforcement. 
I wanted to turn back to the issue of uh, safety of elected officials, federal and local. Uh, you mentioned a couple of words a few minutes ago, true threats and serious bodily injury. Now I would say that's within the context of, is what's said already, which is the First Amendment, and that all of us are public officials. We chose to run for office, to be in elected office. Um, yet recently, not recently, but throughout the years, we have been confronted with people in our faces, serious bodily harm, us being threatened. So, uh, Mr. Attorney General, I'm trying to figure out some clear lines here. How do we as elected officials protect ourselves? Are we left to conceal weapons? What is it exactly that we need to do? You know, I'll take the heat. I'm an elected official, but where do you, where does that First Amendment stop and that serious bodily injury concept come into play? Thank you. Well, uh, the courts have been quite clear that threats that uh, of an intent to commit uh, an unlawful act uh, uh, of death or a threat of serious bodily injury are not protected by the First Amendment. Uh, anger, uh, getting up in your face, uh, those things are, are protected unless there are some local provisions one way or the other. They are protected. Yes, people can argue with you. People can say vile things to you. People can insult you. I'm sorry to say this. Doesn't mean I'd like that idea. Doesn't mean that that's a, where we should be in a civil society. But the First Amendment protects vigorous argument. Um, I, uh, with respect to self-protection, I'm going to have to leave that to the Capitol Police and uh, their protective organization. To, uh, give those kind, that kind of advice to you. If you think you have a threat, if you've received a threat of uh, violence uh, or a uh, threat of, of serious bodily injury, you should report it. Um, many other members of Congress have done that. Um, we just arrested somebody in uh, Alaska for threatening the two Alaskan senators. I'm very concerned about the influence of lobbyists in Washington, D.C. There's no prohibition against the Department of Justice hiring lobbyists to be prosecutors, is there? You mean former lobbyists, I hope. Yes, that's correct. Oh, no, there's no prohibition. And can you describe for us the specific vetting that the department does when professional influence peddlers are hired and given prosecuting authorities? Well, the uh, hiring of uh, assistant U.S. attorneys is a, this is a career hire made in the different U.S. attorneys' offices. There's I mean for the Washington. I mean in Washington at DOJ, are there any special procedures that yes. vet lobbying contracts or maybe who a lobbyist worked for before they're giving, given prosecutorial authority? So again, I'm, I'm not sure what uh, kind of person you're speaking with. If you're talking about uh, pro line prosecutors, there is a background check. Everybody, uh, I'm sure here is familiar with the SF-86, has to be filled out, includes all the people that you work for. The same is true in Maine Justice. But there's no yep. special review for lobbyists as opposed to people who've been engineers or had any other career? I don't know, but I, I don't believe there's a difference, but obviously lobbying may Let's ask about conflicts. political consultants. Political consultants are people who get paid to ensure that a candidate wins or loses an election, that a political movement is successful or unsuccessful. Is there any prohibition against hiring political consultants as prosecutors at the department? 
Again, I don't think that um, we're allowed to even look at people's politics. The question no, 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 no. It's not their politics. It's the profession of being a political consultant. There's no special vetting for them. I don't think that there? there's a specific prohibition. There is a requirement that once somebody becomes a prosecutor, just like when somebody becomes a judge, that they get rid of whatever preconceptions they had before and that they go forward under their new responsibilities and are subject to the ethics rules of their new We would hope that would be the case, Mr. Attorney General, but I tend to think that if people are in the influence peddling game or they're prosecutors, it can be kind of dangerous to mix those, to be an influence peddler for hire one day, to be a prosecutor the next, maybe to rotate back and forth among those careers, and it sounds like there's no special vetting for lobbyists or political consultants. Let me ask the question about partisan committee staff. We have partisan committee staff that you see here. Their job is to ensure that one party or another preserves or uh, you know, uh, captures the majority, that legislative proposals are successful or not successful. No prohibition against the department hiring partisan committee staff as prosecutors, is there? As I understand it, every administration, including the one preceding this one, has hired people who have been committee staff. Yeah. I don't think there's a statutory limitation. If uh, the House of Representatives and the Senate think that uh, uh, partisan, um, or I'm not sure what That's how Preparara got his job. He worked for Schumer, and then he ended up in the Southern District. So we have people who can be lobbyists and then prosecutors. We have people who can be political consultants and then prosecutors. We have people who can be partisan committee staff and then prosecutors. The public integrity section has jurisdiction over election integrity, correct? Uh, it has uh, 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 jurisdiction over election crimes, yes. Yes. So uh, is there any prohibition against people who've been lobbyists, um, partisan committee staff, or political consultants actually going in and serving in the public integrity section? Or is that allowed? Just say again, uh, the hiring in the public integrity section is a career hire uh, made under the civil service. It's not made... I know, I'm worried about their prior career, though. See, what, what I think is that if, if someone has been a, a political operative, to then put them in charge of election crimes, it's kind of like having the fox guard the hen house, don't you think? Oh, so if, if you think that, that would be a perfect uh, example of something the House should pass a statute barring people from particular professions from working in the Justice Department. I, and would you support that legislation? I'd have to look at what it is, and I have to look at whether it, it itself violates the First Amendment, but I don't I, I think there have ever been any restrictions like that before. I, I appreciate your open-mindedness, uh, and, and I hope that persists during your time at the Department. Would you provide the committee a list of lobbyists, former lobbyists, or just former political consultants who work in the public integrity section so that we might inform on the legislation that you've suggested we might consider? Well, I don't intend to create a list of career officials and what their previous jobs were. Would you agree that allowing threats of violence and intimidation against elected officials to go unreported or unpunished could not only lead to greater violence against elected officials, but also contribute to an atmosphere that's harmful to free speech and the free exchange of ideas? Yes, I do agree. Um, can you address how this kind of sweeping intrusion into election and personal data under the guise of an election audit might violate federal election laws? Um, yes, I, I can't. Um, let me just say on, on, on the previous point that you made, I, although I gave you a quick answer, a full answer is we have an election threats task force. 
uh, and we've had that for quite some time. I've met with the National Association of Election Administrators um, and uh, the National Association of Secretaries of State for every state, um, and that's what prompted uh, us to uh, establish this task force. Now, on the second question, I can't, I don't want to discuss any particular circumstance, and certainly not that one, but there are provisions of the Voting Rights Act that require um, uh, state elect, uh, election officials to keep control, custody of uh, voting records and voting uh, equipment and materials relating to the last election, I think for 18 months. Uh, and similarly, there are provisions of the same statute uh, which prohibit intimidation of, uh, or acts leading to the intimidation of voters. Um, both of which are sort of the core of, um, of the federal government's concern with respect to um, post-election audits. At the White House in April, I was very pleased with the administration's announcement that uh, DOJ would be issuing a proposed rule within 60 days to tighten regulations on pistol st stabilizing braces, as I requested in my letter. And so I want to thank the department and wonder if you might be able to opine as to the status of the rule uh, of where you are in the rulemaking process. Well, I believe that we're still in the rulemaking process. I, I can't remember whether the comment period has closed or not, um, but uh, um, you know, as part of the Administrative Procedure Act, as you know, we have to go through a rulemaking procedure, and that's what's going on here uh, to prevent uh, um, uh, these, uh, the pistols uh, from being uh, used as short-barreled rifles, which are, are prohibited. Now, I know, Attorney General Garland, I think you'd agree with me. So current law allows for grand jury material known as Rule 6E material to be released publicly after 30 years. That's current law. Is that right? Um, actually, I, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I, I don't think that's uh, correct. Uh, uh, we have made a recommendation to the uh, Federal uh, Rules Committee that it be released um, I think 30 years is the time, but the uh, Rules Committee has not yet uh, decided whether that, that would be the case. But that is, the, I think 30 years was the number that we recommended. So we think that's the subject that I was sort of wanting to, to dig yeah. in on. My understanding is that current law provides for 30 years. Uh, the Trump administration in 2020, a senior uh, Trump administration official, or a lawyer rather at DOJ, proposed that the time period be extended to 50 years. And my understanding is the Department of Justice has uh, continued that request uh, and made that request for the time period to be extended to 50 years. As you can imagine, uh, there are a lot of concerns, uh, many of which I hold and many of my colleagues hold, around judicial uh, secrecy and the extension of the time period to 50 years uh, would seem a bit much. You know, if, if were that to be adopted, uh, many of the materials released post-Watergate would still be secret today. So, so I would certainly... Um, so we, we have uh, uh, sent another letter uh, post the um, um, letter that you were speaking about uh, to the Rules Committee. There's no reason why we can't share it. It's not a private letter or anything. Um, and it, it, it went back, um, I think, even a uh, shorter period than the Holder letter originally was. So we'll, we'll, I'll ask my staff to get that for you. Well, that's terrific to hear. So thank you, Attorney General. Thank you to the Department for making that change. Um, and I think that that is going to uh, uh, allay many of the concerns that folks had, uh, certainly mine. So I appreciate the Department of Justice doing that. Finally, last question. Uh, national Substance Abuse Prevention is this month. I know my colleague from Florida, Representative Deutsch, asked you a couple of questions with respect to the opioid epidemic uh, that is uh, pervasive across our country, including in my state in Colorado, where on average two Coloradans are dying a day from opioid overdoses. 
Uh, the department has worked with us on a bill that we introduced, the Preventing Youth Substance Abuse Act, and I want to thank DOJ for their partnership in that regard, and just wanted to give you an opportunity uh, before uh, the, the hearing concludes here this afternoon to add anything else further you'd like to add with respect to your answer to Representative Deutsch about the department's work to address uh, this epidemic, and I think there's bipartisan interest in the Congress in partnering with your department to ensure uh, that those solutions are applied broadly across the country, including in my state of Colorado. So this is a terrible epidemic. I um, you know, went to um, uh, the U.S. Attorney's offices all across uh, California, also in uh, Tucson, to find out what's happening with respect to the importation of, of this fentanyl. Um, it is, I would say, our most uh, number one concern now uh, because these pills are um, something like four out of ten pills. You're, it's, it's like uh, playing Russian roulette. If you take one of those, you die. And um, uh, the kids who are taking those have no idea that that's what's happening. Um, sometimes they think there's something else that they're buying rather than those. These are, um, you know, they are, uh, use precursors coming from the People's Republic of China, coming into Mexico. Then they are pressed into pill form uh, in Mexico and then transmitted across the border. Um, the uh, uh, CBP is doing an extremely good job of, of uh, checking the trucks and checking the cars for this uh, material, but it is, it is uh, an overwhelming problem uh, run by the cartels. Um, and the DEA is working extremely hard on this matter. When I was in um, Mexico City, I raised uh, on, with respect to the high-level security talks that we recently had with their security minister uh, uh, secretaries, I raised uh, precisely this issue. Do you believe recent Inspector General FISA report citing widespread and material noncompliance by the FBI with proper due process for surveillance of U.S. citizens is a violation of the Fourth Amendment? I think it's a violation of the FISA Act by itself without even having to get to the Constitution. And we take this extraordinarily seriously. That's why we have an inspector general. That's why our national security division reviews what the FBI does with respect to FISA. Uh, and I know that the FBI director takes this very seriously as well. And they have made major fixes to their practices so this won't occur again. Um, and this is constantly being audited and reviewed uh, by um, our national security division. I take this very seriously and I agree we have to be extremely careful about surveillance of American citizens, only as appropriate under the statute. Right. Potential of Fourth and Fifth Amendment could be violated if you have material and widespread, as the report says. In your June 15 remarks on domestic terrorism, you said that nearly every day you get a briefing from the FBI director and his team. How often do you discuss FISA violations in your briefings? So I didn't hear the. How often do you discuss this FISA violations when you get your nearly daily briefings with uh, the FBI? Uh, so there's a quarterly review by uh, that, that uh, an intelligence community and the National Security Division submits uh, to the intelligence committees with respect to FISA reviews, um, and I always review those. I meet with the National Security Division um, relatively routinely to discuss how that's going. Um, so it's not every morning, but um, this review of um, violations of FISA and, uh, and our efforts to make sure that it doesn't happen again is pretty mm -hmm. frequent. Former Border Patrol Chief Rodney Scott recently said that the open border poses a real terror threat. Do you agree with the Border Patrol Chief or Secretary Mayorkas, who recently said that the border is no less secure than before? 
uh, if you're asking about uh, terrorism traveling across the border, I'm concerned about that across all of our borders. This has been a, a continuing concern. But do you agree with that, you know, Border Patrol chief, that what's happening right now is make us less secure and have a real, you know, increased terror threat? Uh, I, I believe that the combination of the intelligence community and the FBI are working very hard to make sure that uh, uh, people crossing the border do not constitute a terrorist threat. But uh, we have to always be worried about the possibility, and uh, we are ever vigilant on that subject. Can you reassure the American people that you will be able to protect our country from a terrorist attack that may result from this lawlessness at the border or the Afghanistan debacle? I can assure the American people that the FBI is working every day to the do the best it possibly can to protect the American people from terrorism from whatever direction it comes, whether it comes from Afghanistan or any other direction. But do you have any specific actions and plans that you're doing in light of what's happening right now in the border? Do you have a specific strategy that you're working directly there, with in, in considering the current FBI, situation? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk. Oh. Yeah, considering current situation on the border, do you take any specific actions at the border? Well, uh, with respect to um, the first part of your question about Afghanistan, the FBI is participating along with Homeland Security in vetting the refugees who have landed in various locations, Qatar, um, uh, uh, Kosovo, uh, Rammstein Air, Air Base, and then in bases in the United States. Um, so they're doing everything they can uh, to vet uh, for those purposes. Uh, with respect to uh, crossing of the border. This is a combination of uh, the intelligence community uh, outside uh, of, of, our, of our intelligence community uh, getting information about who might be trying to cross. Extreme risk protection orders, also known as red flag uh, orders, allow courts to temporarily remove firearms for, from those who pose imminent danger to themselves or risk of harming others. In April 7th, 2021, uh, an announcement of initial actions to curb gun violence, the Biden White House encouraged Congress to pass a national red flag law. How would the national red flag law work with other federal protections to prevent gun violence? So we're in favor of a national red flag law. Um, what we're doing now is uh, uh, making model red flag laws for the states. Um, um, and these models provide um, that uh, guns can be taken away for a person, uh, from a person in uh, distress, normally from a, a, a mental crisis of, of some kind, um, 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 when requested by someone uh, close to them, uh, or if there's already a, a court violation of, of some kind. But it provides due process protections uh, for those people uh, to ensure that it's not in a, that haven't been inappropriately taken. Uh, the, the, you know, the risk here is that people in, in, in uh, distress uh, can commit violent acts, um, and um, when they have easy access to a firearm, the risk is that that uh, violent act uh, ends in a death. So um, I think the red flag laws are very important in that respect. Thank you, as do I. Uh, Attorney General Garland, we lost 49 people, including many young people, at the mass shooting at Pulse Nightclub in Orlando, Florida. And the shooter was previously the subject of a 10-month FBI investigation. And during this investigation, the FBI interviewed the shooter's wife, who later said that he strangled her, he raped her, beat her, and even while she was pregnant, he threatened to kill her. 
53% of mass shootings involve a shooter killing an intimate partner or family member among other victims. And even among those mass shooters who do not kill an intimate partner, as in the Pulse shooting, there's often a history of domestic violence. Since the Pulse shooting, has the department updated its domestic investigations and operations guide or U.S. Attorney's Manual to ensure that it is examining whether a person has a history of domestic violence? So I don't know the exact answer into the past. I know that right now the Deputy Attorney General is doing a review with respect to the way in which the department treats victims, uh, including victims in the circumstance that you talked about, and uh, uh, creates warning systems for, the, for those sorts of things. Um, so I, don't, I can't give you any fuller information than that, but I can ask my staff to get back to you. Thank you very much. If you do so, we appreciate it. Also, can you assure me that you will take action to make sure that we are not missing any opportunities to save American lives. Well, that's our, that's our, this is our number one uh, goal. Oh, thank you. And on May 7th, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Uh, May 7th, 2021, you signed a proposed ATF rule to ensure the proper marking, record keeping, and traceability of all firearms manufactured, imported, acquired, and disposed by federal firearms licenses licensees by clarifying the definition of firearm and gunsmith, among all other small changes. How will this new definition help reduce the sale of ghost guns and increase background checks prior to their purchases? So ghost guns, which are uh, ready, uh, uh, sometimes ready, build, shoot, they're called. They're kits that you can buy in pieces and put them together. Uh, right now, there's a, some, some lack of clarity or dispute about whether serial numbers have to be, be on them and then um, whether you need a license, um, I'm sorry, um, whether a, a check uh, a, a, a has to be made in order to determine uh, whether the person is a prohibited purchaser. Uh, this rule will require um, that serial numbers be put on the, the uh, pieces. Uh, and that um, uh, a federally licensed um, firearms dealer has to uh, do the background check. This does two things. One, it will enable us to trace these guns. And uh, second, um, it will make sure that uh, people who are prohibited because they're a felon or whatever other reason uh, shouldn't, won't be able to get the gun. I've been in both in Chicago and New York and been quite stunned to learn the high percentage of guns at uh, murder scenes uh, were that, that a high percentage, much higher than I would have expected, were ghost guns. I, I had not realized how significant the problem is, but uh, police on the street are reporting that ghost guns are becoming more and more of a problem. So I, I'm hopeful that this regulation will give us some uh, chance to beat that back. In a press release announcing the investigation, you said that the DOJ's investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department will examine the use of excessive force by the police, including during those protests. Um, will you also be investigating the origins of the deadly and destructive riots that rav ravaged large parts of Minneapolis? So uh, I think these are uh, two separate kinds of investigations. The one of the police department is one under the statute that authorizes us to do pattern or practice of unconstitutional policing. It's done by the Civil Rights Division. That was welcomed, I understand, by the chief and by the, by the mayor, and that's, that's a one set, separate one. The investigations of the riots um, uh, was, are undertaken by the U.S. Attorney's Office as well as by the state's attorney. Uh, I think it's called state's attorney, and maybe it's a county. State's attorney in Minneapolis, I guess. 
um, and um, those are two separate sets of inve investigations. So you will not be, so your, your department, DOJ, will not be investigating well, the that? U.S. Attorney's Office, to the extent there were uh, federal uh, uh, crimes, um, has been investigating uh, those crimes. I don't know, I have no idea where the... DOJ will not be... Not main justice, I don't believe so, no. Okay, uh, but during the riots following the George Floyd, um, the death of George Floyd, dozens of people were injured, countless uh, small businesses, uh, churches were damaged, a police station was burnt down, a post office was burnt down, looted and damaged all over, and thousands of people had to flee Minneapolis to avoid the violence. Um, is the Department of Justice investigating these riots as an act of domestic terrorism at all? So now I, I think, if I'm understanding correctly, we're talking about uh, 2020. Um, after and, yeah, after and, the death of George Floyd. Yes, and that investigation, I think, you know, that that was ordered by the previous Attorney General, and I, I don't know uh, whether there whether that is concluded. Uh, I, I believe. Uh, I, I don't know whether there are any ongoing investigations anymore from that um, from that investigation, except for the charges that were made at the time, and um, those cases are being followed, obviously. Well, and um, Attorney General Garland, maybe you could get back to me in particular, or the or the uh, committee on um, on the status of those and what what is happening with that. I'd be happy to have my staff get back to yours. Appreciate that. Um, uh, yeah, and, and I wanted to focus a little bit on the uh, the third police precinct that was burnt down and still has not been rebuilt. Uh, police officers don't even know if they're going to have a job in a few weeks, given the uh, the uh, resolution that's in front of the. Uh, in front of the body, They're, they have a resolution, and you're probably not familiar with it, but they don't even know if they're gonna have a job because they may be defunding the police in Minneapolis. Um, you know, the city is down over 200 officers since pre-COVID. If you talk to police officers, they're demoralized, they're struggling, uh, they don't feel supported at all. Um, they're having a very hard time, and you're the one initiating investigation of the Minneapolis Police Department. Considering all the scrutiny that they are under, how do you propose uh, Minneapolis can keep up police officer morale now that they're under inv investigation and criticism, all of the criticism they're taking as well? Uh, well, let me say first on the defund police issue, the department does not support defunding police, nor does the president. So we've asked for more than a billion dollars, a major increase in funds for uh, local police departments. And sir, I didn't imply you did. I just wanted you to know, understand the context of the question because it's in front of the, um, the Minneapolis residents right now. I do. Um, with respect to the pattern of practice investigation, there were a large number of serious incidents that were well reflected in the press, and I think there was general agreement that there were problems. This does not mean that every police officer, quite the contrary. Uh, this means that uh, uh, my belief is, and from talking to many police officers, that they believe that it's important that there be accountability and that officers who break the law are held accountable so that the community retains its trust in the good police officers who do not break the law, and those are by, you know, the very large majority. They need that trust in order to have the cooperation of the community, and that's the only way they can be safe, and that's the only way the community can be safe. So I think police officers should look at these investigations in a positive way, and we are trying to present them in a positive way. As Attorney General, you serve on the Operation Lady Justice Task Force, but that was a task force created under the last Attorney General, not you. You agree that our tribal communities deserve more from the nation's top law enforcement official? 
Look, I think this is a terrible tragedy, um, uh, this circumstance, uh, almost inexplicable stra uh, tragedy. Um, if I haven't spoken on it uh, yet, um, I soon will be because under the President's executive order, I'll be co-chairing a commission along with the Secretary of the Interior. Um, I have been um, uh, to the U.S. Attorney's offices in Oklahoma, uh, which have significant uh, tribal responsibilities, and we have spoken about those matters. But you shouldn't uh, mistake lack of public statements uh, to be a lack of uh, concern or passion about this issue. There are 574 federally recognized tribes in the United States. Of those, 326 have reservations, and more than 1 million Native Americans live on or near reservations. That's not counting the many who live in urban areas. Yet. There are fewer than 200 special agents and victim specialists in the FBI's Indian Country Program. Do you believe the FBI's Indian Country Program is sufficiently staffed? Well, I think the FBI could always use additional resources. Um, I have to look into that specific question, uh, which I haven't evaluated whether there are sufficient staff. In light of the facts I just laid out, will you commit today to adding staff to the Indian Country Program? Well, I'm very interested in, you know, our normal approach on this is cooperation with tribal uh, officers um, and, and uh, uh, cooperation with the sovereign uh, tribes uh, so that we are in sync on this rather than um, the federal government um, invading tribal prerogatives. But I do think that we need to look at this more closely, and this is one of the things I'll be speaking with the uh, Interior Secretary about. As you know, there's great frustration by uh, many of our tribal leaders that when they ask for additional federal support uh, to investigate these cases, they, they feel like they don't receive that support. Our nation knows the tragic story of Gabby Petito because of the tremendous media coverage and law enforcement involvement her case garnered. All of us gr grieve for Gabby's family and friends, while at the same time, I wish that every missing person's case earned the same level of media attention. The FBI committed significant resources to that case, which I appreciate. But Mr. Attorney General, when a Native woman goes missing, or any woman of color for that matter, they don't get the same level of attention from the Department of Justice and FBI. What would you say to their families to explain why? I don't think there's any excuse for not giving uh, equal uh, treatment uh, to Native uh, and Indigenous missing um, persons. Um, and I, uh, I don't believe there's any effort to not do that. Um, um, I know that uh, both the FBI and the Marshal Service are involved in this, uh, along with their partners, um, their tribal partners, um, and uh, I'm not sure what else I can say about that. Mr. Attorney General, uh, you announced that the DOJ would use its authority and resources, along with the FBI, to police speech at school board meetings. In your opinion, what limitations does the Tenth Amendment bring to uh, your effort to police those school board meetings and the speech therein? Well, uh, let me be clear. Uh, we have no intention uh, of policing school board meetings, nor does any memorandum from me uh, suggest that we would do that. The memorandum that you're referring to is about threats of violence and violence, and that's all it's about. We greatly respect the uh, First Amendment right of um, um, parents uh, uh, to appear before school boards and uh, challenge uh, uh, and argue against um, uh, provisions um, that the school boards are doing. Uh, this memorandum has absolutely nothing to do with that. So you believe the sheriffs and the local police should police the, these school board meetings and investigate the threats of violence? Yes, obviously the first step is for uh, state and local um, authorities to do that. 
This memorandum is about cooperating with state and local authorities. Now, there are some federal statutes that cover uh, threats and intimidation and, har and harassment, and we have the obligation to enforce those. But okay, those, do uh, not, uh, pay, those don't apply to move on a school board meeting. Let me ask you about the uh, vaccine mandate at the DOJ. Is it true that people, employees of the DOJ, can apply for religious exemption? Um, the, the, um, the, the mandate, as I uh, understand it, um, which, um, is um, a mandate which allows exceptions provided by law. So, uh, Religious uh, Freedom uh, Restoration Act is a provision of law. So the uh, religious exemption has a basis in the Constitution, and so that's, that's required to be constitutional. Can you tell me if anybody's been granted a religious exemption? Uh, I, I don't know. So I believe that it's fraud, in fact fraud, to tell people that you're going to preserve their constitutional religious accommodations by telling they can apply for an exemption and then not allowing any of those exemptions. And I'm sad to see that you can't tell us that anybody's been granted an exemption. Ms. Dean. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Welcome, Attorney General Garland. Thank you for your service to our country. I'd like to try to get to three important areas. Number one, let me follow up on some of the questions we've had around guns, in particular ghost guns. They are often obtained without a background check, and most ghost guns are untraceable. These weapons are incredibly attractive to criminals, increasingly common, and should concern us all. This March, Pennsylvania investigators uncovered a trafficking ring suspected of frequenting gun shows to sell ghost guns, spreading them in my district and across our Commonwealth. Access to ghost guns impacts regular Americans like Heather Sue Campbell and Matthew Bowersox of Snyder County, Pennsylvania, who were shot and killed last year by Heather's ex-husband, the subject of a protection order. He took her life with a ghost gun, a homemade P80 polymer 9mm pistol. Could you? continue to talk about how the proliferation of ghost guns hinders the ability of law enforcement and what is DOJ's strategy to protect us from ghost guns. This is in follow-up to my colleague, uh, Representative McBath. Yes, uh, so um, we are finding more and more ghost guns at uh, uh, violent crime scenes. I, I don't remember the statistics exactly, but I believe in both New York uh, and in Chicago, I was told that at least 20 percent uh, of, of the crime scenes, particularly the violent crime and murder scenes, um, uh, we're finding uh, that they were uh, done by ghost, ghost guns. Ghost guns have two problems, uh, one of which is they're untraceable because they don't have serial numbers, uh, and second, um, they are not subject, or at least I should say there's been some uh, dispute about whether they're subject to uh, requiring background checks. Uh, that's the reason that um, we um, initiated a rulemaking uh, to require that the parts of the um, uh, gun, which are sold as kits in parts, are stamped with serial numbers by the manufacturer, and that when they are uh, sold, they must have serial numbers on them uh, as a kit, and um, um, they must run the background checks that you're talking about. You are now at the helm of DOJ. Will you continue the use of Title 42 authority even after CDC has repeatedly stated there was no evidence that the use of Title 42 would slow the spread of COVID? Well, the, the use of the authority comes from the CDC itself. They're the ones who issue um, uh, the orders with respect to Title 42. And um, um, this is a challenge also in the courts. Um, we believe that uh, the CDC has a, a basis um, because of the uh, uh, concern about spread of COVID, which is what the grounds are. 
Um, how long that will last is a determination CDC will make with respect to uh, the pandemic and what the threats are with respect to the pandemic. Uh, this doesn't have anything to do with you know, my view or uh, the government's view about the importance of asylum. It goes only to uh, the CDC's authority under Title 42 to issue this kind of order. Um, Mr. Garland, what steps is the Justice Department taking to ensure that redistricting plans do not violate the Voting Rights Act and discriminate against racial, ethnic, and language minority voters? Um, so we announced uh, um, uh, before any of the redistricting uh, plans began uh, because we knew that the decennial um, um, uh, census um, would be leading to redistricting plans that the voting um, uh, section of the uh, Civil Rights Division will be reviewing um, all of these plans. Uh, that's why we doubled the size of the voting uh, section, because the uh, burden uh, uh, of, this, of this work is, is large, and there's a lot of it because of the census. So the Justice Department Civil Rights Division will be um, examining these plans and uh, will uh, act accordingly as the facts and the law provide. How at risk are minor minority voters from being disenfranchised in elections over the coming years? And what will the department do to confront those risks? So um, Justice Department has authority under the Voting Rights Act um, to uh, prevent changes in practices and procedures uh, with respect to voting that are discriminatory. Uh, in the ways that you describe. Um, the Supreme Court in Shelby County case eliminated uh, one uh, tool we had, uh, which was the Section 5 preclearance um, provision. Uh, so what we have now is uh, Section 2, which allows us to make these determinations on a case-by-case -case basis with respect to a discriminatory intent and a disc uh, discriminatory effect. Um, the, the voting rights section are, is reviewing uh, the changes that are made as they are being made and after they are being made. Uh, we have filed uh, one lawsuit already uh, in that respect, and the uh, investigations are continuing. I can't talk about any particular state, though. Thank you. And in my very limited time, uh, women in Texas are under attack. Our freedom to uh, reproductive rights and our rights to an abortion are under attack. Um, and this has been furthered by the Supreme Court and their uh, recent, the consequences of their shadow docket. In your opinion, what are some of the practical consequences of the court's decision denying stay in the case, the Texas case, via the process informally known as the shadow docket. You've got about 20 seconds. I'm so sorry. All right. Well, most of what I'm about to say uh, is reflected in the briefs that we just filed with the Supreme Court the other day, uh, asking them to take this case. Uh, what we're particularly concerned about is the inability of anybody to challenge what is a clear violation of the Supreme Court's precedent with respect to the right to abortion um, because of the way that the law is structured. And we can't have a system in which constitutional rights evade judicial view, uh, whether it's about abortion or uh, any other right. And uh, uh, I think I'll leave it with uh, uh, my, our briefs, which were just filed uh, and which explicate what I just said in greater detail and I'm sure with greater style. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, let me start with a simple question to you. Which of those 19 states has the Justice Department sued for unlawful or unconstitutional voter suppression? Well, this is on the public record. We sued Georgia. Uh, only one out of 19. In your June address, you emphasized that a meaningful right to vote requires meaningful enforcement 
Uh, yet even as we face an historic level of voter suppression and even as we confront grave threats to the integrity of vote counts, the Justice Department has not challenged the vast majority of these laws in court. And would you say that bringing one case against state voter suppression is meaningful enforcement? I think we have to uh, prevent uh, discriminatory violations of the uh, Voting Rights Act wherever they occur and in as many states as they occur. But uh, these investigations under Section 2 uh, are very record-intensive and very labor-intensive. And uh, voting rights, uh, 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 the voting section of the Civil Rights Division is extremely devoted uh, to making those kind of analysis, but we have to do uh, each case uh, one by one because of uh, the elimination of Section 5. Uh, that is uh, what the, the, the Civil Rights Division under uh, our new Assistant Attorney General, Kristen Clark, is doing. Uh, I have great confidence in her and uh, in the division. As you know, ransomware attacks are a significant concern um, throughout the country, but particularly in my district in North Carolina. In May, the Colonial Pipeline attack left nearly three-quarters of Raleigh, North Carolina gas stations simply without fuel. And as you also know, the Colonial Pipeline paid a ransom demanded by the hackers in order to unlock their systems and resume operations. While the DOJ's recently launched Ransomware and Digital Extortion Task Force was eventually able to recoup um, some of the money paid by Colonial Pipeline, victims are often left to negotiate with attackers to recover the systems without any federal help. And so I'd like for you to share why DOJ chose to be more aggressive in the Colonial Pipeline situation and what are the factors that leads, lead, would lead DOJ to get involved directly in a ransomware case? Well, um, I don't want to go too far out on a limb on this, but I think DOJ would like to be involved in every ransomware case if we have the resources. Uh, the, the problem is generally um, uh, not all victims of ransomware tell us. Uh, not all victims tell us before uh, they make uh, ransom payments. If victims would tell us before, uh, we would have a good opportunity uh, possibly to be able to recover. Uh, we would have some uh, opportunity to be able to help between um, the FBI and uh, uh, the computer um, uh, section of the Justice Department and the um, um, computer section at, H, uh, at the Department of Homeland Security, we are willing and able uh, to deal with victims of um, ransomware, including uh, doing negotiations if necessary. So I think uh, this is really more of a question of getting uh, cooperation from the victims who, uh, and I, I mean no respect to the, disrespect to the victims, but they're not always willing to tell us uh, in advance. And I think it would be very helpful if we were told in advance. Um, are you aware that black and brown people are disproportionately stopped, searched, and arrested by police, often for minor infractions? I've certainly read that, and I'm not surprised to learn it. Thank you. Are you aware that according to the FBI, white nationalists have infiltrated rank-and-file police departments? Uh, I'm not sure I, I, I know the specific reference that you said about the FBI. Um, I know that there are problems uh, in some police departments with respect to domestic violent extremists uh, being in the ranks, and I know that many police departments are trying to make sure that that's uh, not the case. But I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I know the reference that you're talking about. 
In light of these realities, do you believe that systemic racism exists in law enforcement agencies? So I, I think uh, racism exists in, in, in a number of areas of our society, and the purpose, for example, of these pattern or practice investigations that we do uh, is to make sure uh, that uh, there is not a pattern or practice unconstitutional uh, policing. Mm -hmm. um, that's the job of the Civil Rights Division, uh, to um, look at these uh, matters, to take into account um, complaints in this area, and to investigate them. Yes. Um, the department requested $1 billion in federal funding for law enforcement agencies in fiscal year 2022, an increase from last year. We are rewarding police departments rather than holding them accountable for racist practices. The department has a powerful tool at its disposal. Title VI of the Civil Rights Act mandates that recipients of federal funds do not discriminate, and it makes clear that if they do, they are ineligible for federal funding. I am happy to see that the department is undergoing a 90-day review of Title VI. Given the structural racism in law enforcement agencies that you have, acknowledged. Will you commit today to withholding funds to law enforcement agencies that discriminate in violation of Title VI? So as you correctly point out, um, our, our Associate Attorney General uh, and Deputy Attorney General are doing a review of uh, Title VI and how it should uh, be applied to our grants. I want to be clear, um, we are um, um, funding um, um, local police departments. Um, but we are also making grants for the purpose of, of uh, supporting constitutional policing, better community policing, better programs uh, to ensure that there are, uh, isn't discrimination. Um, I think that uh, um, um, there, there are many, many, many uh, um, uh, uh, good-hearted uh, and non-discriminatory police officers. We have to support them. Um, and uh, root out the ones uh, who uh, violate the law. That's our job. Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare Noble wherever you found us, and you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening.